10 wins in a row for the Orioles and the Mariners? Is it a fact or a fluke? I'll ask Steve Gardner about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 15th. It's show number 27 of the 2022 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Steve Gardner from USA Today, discussing the red-hot M's and O's, the extinction of starting pitchers, a winning manager fired, full-season all-stars, second-half surgers, and his boons and banes. We'll have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including bullpen situations in Washington and San Francisco, and some injured list returnees in Cincinnati and Milwaukee. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including injuries to Whit Merrifield, Luis Severino, and Shane Boz, and injury list returns by Nathan Ivaldi, Kevin Gossman, and Joe Adele. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Pittsburgh relief pitcher Yeri De Los Santos. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about having fun with stolen base stats. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Steve Gardner from USA Today. Steve, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks so much, Patrick. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. It's always fun for me, too. And before we talk baseball, uh, you also cover some other sports at USA Today. And you had a really nice story about the presentation of the Hart Trophy, the NHL's MVP trophy. They have a big uh, Las Vegas-style show. What was the story that you presented that had nothing to do with hockey really well it, it didn't um except that on the ice in the seattle kraken's first game uh of their nhl history um uh they were playing the vancouver canucks and the assistant equipment manager for the canucks his name is uh, brian red hamilton um was on the ice and uh, uh, an aspiring medical school student was right there close to uh, to the ice and was able to see like this cancerous looking mole that was on his neck. And she sort of informed him with a little text message or, or a message on her phone where he could see it. Um, and so she told him to go get it checked. He did. It did turn out to be cancerous and um, he got it treated and uh, things are in great shape now. So uh, that was kind of a neat little story about the power of, of hockey and, 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 compassion and stuff like that, that um, was was pretty interesting. And so that's why the NHL made it a part of, of the Hart Trophy presentation, you know, their, their, their biggest award of the entire season. The trainer who was rescued by this young medical student uh, said she was his MVP, which I thought was a nice touch for him to say that, uh, given the fact that uh, she's just a relatively minor functionary in the great scheme of things. But, hey, she saved his life, and good for her. Uh, there was something of a brouhaha at Wimbledon, and it didn't yeah. involve Nick Kyrgios. I thought that was interesting. What was the story in the gentleman's doubles, of all things? 
Well, yeah, in the quarterfinal match, there was uh, there was a delay because a call got overturned by the Hawkeye replay system that they have, and um, the the team that it went against was the top seed in the in the men's doubles, and uh, they just sort of protested and said that they thought that the ball was out when it they it was called in, and they basically refused to continue the match until they turned the system off. And uh, that was kind of going, uh, it was a crucial point, I guess that was the thing in the match. But um, anyway, they delayed the match. They sat there and had to get an umpire supervisor to come in. And uh, it was, you know, petulant tennis players are, are all around, whether it's singles, doubles, or, or whatever. And the, the doubles, even at Wimbledon, is not super well attended. It's not considered a prestige event. Uh, I've attended the U.S. Open a couple of times, and I can tell you that doubles tennis is actually more interesting to watch than singles in a lot of ways. There's a lot more action at the net. There's a lot more athleticism at the net. I, I really enjoy it. But the uh, what popped into my mind is... This is a, this system was invented because the lines people were getting so many calls wrong and everybody mm-hmm. knew it because they watch on TV and they'd see uh, there was a very famous incident with Serena Williams at the U.S. Open where I think she was playing Jennifer Capriati and Capriati hit a ball that was, or uh, I'm sorry, Williams hit a ball that was three feet inside the line. It was like, it was just a clean winner. And for some reason, the lines person called it out. I mean, and literally every person in the entire stadium was booing because they all saw this. And the only (laughs) two people who didn't apparently were the lines person and the umpire under whose nose it actually happened. And every time the subject of balls and strikes comes up with the Hawkeye system now installed in Major League Baseball parks, I always make the point that what we're asking umpires to do with balls and strikes is literally physically impossible. And that tennis lines people have the advantage of only having to determine whether a ball hit the ground inside right. a clearly marked boundary. And they get that wrong. And then we say to the umpires, well, you've got this five-sided prism floating in the air, but you can't see it. And the ball is moving seven to 18 inches vertically and seven to 18 inches horizontally. And you got to decide whether at any point, any part of the ball travels through the floating five-sided invisible prism. Go to it. Yeah, at 90-some miles per hour, too. <laughs> and, yeah. That's the other thing. You have, a, you have a full second and a half to not even a half a second, probably, to make the decision. And now the Hawkeye comes under question because these two players say, I'm going to trust my own eyes rather than your equipment. And I don't know how the call was settled ultimately because I think they have to trust the system. But I can yeah. see in the future when they get to robo-umps, and I know that day's coming because of gambling more than anything else, that uh, somebody's at some point going to just say this machine is wrong and they might be correct. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's the one thing that I don't like about replay is that it's, it's one thing. And, and maybe this is me being a longtime sports fan and seeing so many bad officials, umpire calls to the point where you just, you know, to keep the game moving just accept it and and hope that you get the next call next time. Um, there's just it seems like now everybody wants to make sure that every single call goes the right way, and it it bothers me more when the replay seems to have the wrong call as the final call. You know, when you go through all that process and still get it wrong. So that's that's one thing that that uh, still rubs me the wrong way with a lot of the replay stuff. Um, I guess for a situation like Armando Galarraga's perfect game, 
you really want to reverse that if it's blatantly wrong, you know, or in a World Series game or something like that. But 162 games in baseball, um, it just seems like we're we're there, there's so much of it that is unnecessary. I understand that too because the the plays that are currently reviewable are inherently pretty hard to make decisions on. They have to look at multiple camera angles. And I understand that they have a system that now combines all the camera angles into one kind of master shot and they can see like advance frame by frame and see it from the top, the bottom, the side, face on from behind all at the same time. And I think that adds to the confusion in, in certain ways, although I still prefer getting the call right to getting it wrong, frankly. And the example I was going to use was the uh, 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 Galarraga perfect game, which of course Jim Joyce felt terrible about. And uh, there was Don Denkinger back in the uh, St. Louis, Kansas City World Series back in the 80s. And there have been others. Uh, and the problem, I think, with I'll just, we'll just let it go and we'll hope that it bounces our way next time is that in a lot of situations, there is no next time. You know, there are calls that change the outcomes of games. But I think the big difference here is that a ball and strike calling thing doesn't have to be, you know, a 12-second replay every time with challenges. The thing beeps in the umpire's ear, he says it's a strike, and we move on. And you can't challenge it because if, if you challenge it, it's it's like giving those guys in tennis a chance to, to challenge a Hawkeye call Right. By Where do referring, you go? <laughs> you go to the Hawkeye. Where's right? the higher power? <laughs> yeah. There really is none. And that's kind of what happened there at Wimbledon. I mean, they, the, the supervisor of, of umpires came over and said, we'll look into it. Now play on. And that was basically how it ended. <laughs> we'll look into it. That's that's kind of British, all right. Yeah, the 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 whole thing, of course, is is subject to debate. I think in every sport, but in the end, my 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 take on it is they should just try to get the call right. And I think one of the things they should do to change how they do it in pro football, in basketball, and in uh, all, all the sports that have it, including baseball, is the people doing the review should not be told what the call was on the field. They should just be told there's a disputed call. Here's the footage. You've got 30 seconds to make a decision and then, and then move on. And, and of course it's still going to be, they're still going to get some wrong, as you said. So nothing's perfect, but I think it comes closer. Now let's move on to a fantasy baseball, Steve. How many leagues are you playing this season? Um, I'm in 15 across the, uh, the spectrum of all the kind, all the different kinds of leagues from sim leagues to auto new to a standard roto. How do you like that auto new? It looks really interesting, but it also looks like a lot of work. It is a lot of work, but only because it's, it's the daily lineup changes that trip me up a lot of the times, you know, I've, I've, I have my job and I've got things that sometimes keep me from being alerted to the different lineup changes and the day games and things like that. Um, so it's a little bit difficult. It's my only league that I have to have daily lineup changes. And uh, so the game itself is really fun and uh, it's an enjoyable format. But um, again, I'm just I'm not a fan of those ones where you have to make lineup changes every day and uh you, you run the risk of, of having somebody not in your lineup that should be or vice versa. I've always thought that the NFBC rule that allows uh, two changes, Sunday and, and Friday, uh, for the two series that teams are likely to be in, I think that makes a lot of sense, although I don't understand why you can't change pitchers at that time. You can only change the hitters. <laughs> but I guess they're, I don't know why it matters if everybody can do it. Then there are certain streaming advantages that you can get from doing that and so forth. But I think that that is not a bad idea. So out of your 15 leagues, how are your teams doing? 
Um, it's it's a mixed bag. I mean, the best team that I have is in mixed labor, where I'm in first place by a, an, an okay margin. Um, and it seems like all the you know the guys that I have rolled the dice on a little bit have come up, uh, have been great. So hopefully I can keep that luck going. But um, otherwise, mostly just competitive. Uh, top five. I know in that auto league, I'm I'm a third. Um, the Fantasy Sports and Gaming Association League, the Industry League, I'm in the top five there and have a shot to win. Not going to win in AL or NL Labor, though, because uh, Eno Saris and Derek Hardy have had some outstanding seasons. But uh, but otherwise, um, Tout Wars, my team, I think it has a chance. Been in the top five for most of the year. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think the goal at midseason for any of my teams is just to be competitive give myself a chance to uh, have things break my way or make a trade or something down the stretch and uh, give myself a shot to win. And what do you do with the teams that aren't performing so well and how do you balance that? There's always a discussion amongst fantasy managers. You know, I've got 15 teams, only so many of them are competitive. I'm going to devote a lot of my energy to those teams. And then the naysayers say, yeah, but now you're kind of shortchanging all the other competitors in your non-competitive leagues. Yeah, I, I think the one thing that we we have a responsibility to our leagues to at least, you know, field a full lineup, um, to at least be active and look at the waiver wires and try to improve the teams each week. Because, you know, in Roto Leagues, the categories, the teams that are competing are competing against you for points. So, yeah, I, I, I try to give each of those teams, even if I'm not going deep into a dive on you know, maybe potential trades or something like that on the teams that I'm not compet or the leagues that I'm not competitive in. But um, but everyone I will look through to check out uh, free agents and and things like that just to keep the in- integrity of the league. Because as a commissioner, you know, uh, of the labor leagues, um, I want everybody to do that in my leagues. So uh, I-, I try and do that in the others. You mentioned that you rolled the dice or tossed coins or something, some gambling metaphor, on uh, <laughs> uh, some of your players, and they really panned out. Uh, who are who were some of those players? Well, um, I think in in that one particular league, the mixed mixed labor. Um, hang on one second. I will make sure. Uh, you know, it's one of those. Uh, Paul Goldschmidt has worked out well. Um, I think actually, I have uh, Pete Alonzo on a couple of different teams. Um, there was some, I don't know, uh, polarizing <laughs> polar bear um, talk about Pete Alonso at the beginning of the season. Would he be able to hit for average? And and so far he has. Um, but you know, Carlos Correa has been good when he's been in the lineup. Um, Tommy Edmond, another guy that uh, has really performed well so far this season. Uh, Ty France was another. Um, so, you know, guys like that. Um, picking up uh, other players on waivers that have worked out for me. Um, it's been it's been a pretty good year. Jeff McNeil, a bounce back season from him. So uh, those are kind of the guys that that have been carrying me at least in that league. Any pitchers that you've had who turned out to be boons? I'll tell you what, Patrick. My my pitching selections have been pretty bad. Um, I, I'm trying to look at, you know, um, Shane McClanahan has been good for one of my teams, but I, he was a keeper in, in one of my home leagues. Um, I picked up Kyle Wright a couple of places early on in the season, but in terms, I looked at, um, my NFBC teams that, I, that I've done for TGFBI and, and, uh, some other leagues and 
all of those, it seems like, really, really good in hitting, really, really bad in pitching or poor in pitching. And uh, I think that's what I'm going to have to do is just go back and reevaluate um, what you know, my criteria is for selecting pitchers or my balance between pitching and hitting. But um, just it seems like this year, maybe it was, I guess, maybe it was the thought of if the baseball is going to be deadened this year, that maybe it makes sense not to pay as much attention to pitching. So, uh, you know, I had Corbin Burns on on one team who's, who's kind of carrying my pitching staff. But the rest, I tried to just piecemeal it, and it really hasn't worked. It's tough to make it work because – in part because so many pitchers that you thought were going to be good have just turned out not to be good. And that's the same every year, but it seems worse this year somehow, especially if you got Jose Barrios in any of your rosters or guys like that who are not just not good, right. they're actively terrible and they're really hurting your team every time they go out there, except in the case of Barrios. Every so often he goes out there and he looks like uh, Walter Johnson, but most of the time he looks like Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And, and there's, it seems like there's no rhyme or reason sometimes to, to figure out, you know, what they're doing wrong or when they're going to get it back. Have you seen any trends or situations that haven't been discussed to death on fantasy baseball podcasts and on fantasy baseball websites that you think players, fantasy managers still might be missing? I, you know, I continue to be infatuated with data on the baseball and, and how early in the season we were seeing such a, a wide, wide range of, um, of poor outcomes for the batters. And as we got into mid-May, all of a sudden, you know, a, a huge bump in, in offense and uh, fly ball distance and but still, even with that, it's below what 2019 was, and and 2021, you know, it's it's still down below what we would expect with all of the stat cast data that we have. So, I, I tell you what, Patrick, I'm I'm <laughs> I'm sorry to not be very enlightening on this, but it, it just baffles me. There's so many there's so many variables that go into things. It's hard to isolate one and say, hey. This is helpful. Let me look at this, um, you know, more than something else, and and let that guide me. It's uh, this. It is a conundrum, to say the least, for us anal- for us analysts. Something else I was curious about your take on. I have in my Tout League, Tout American League only. I have three of the top four stolen base guys in the league: uh, Cedric Mullins, Julio Rodriguez, and uh, Julio Mate- uh, Jorge Mateo. Mm-hmm. And I, my lead in stolen bases is five. And some of the other guys on my roster are also stealing bases. And it seems to me that there's more stolen bases this year, first of all, and they're being more widely distributed than we've seen in the past. Have you noticed that? You know, I I, I look at, um, you know, the stolen bases over time, and it doesn't look like there's there's a huge increase. Although baseball wants to, it seems like to me, it wants to have more stolen bases in the game with some of the rules changes in the minor leagues of of making the bases larger to give batter, you know, or base runners a better jump, things like that. Um, but it, it's one of those, I think my approach to stolen bases is to get a decent enough base when you're drafting. And then treat it like saves 
you know, just try and trade perhaps if you're, if you're lacking there or if you have a surplus to try and trade some of that um, because it's, it's really difficult to, uh, to project. And, and Julio Rodriguez was a, is a great example of somebody coming into the season. We really had no idea what his baseline was, was going to be in stolen bases. We knew he had speed, but um, it's more, I think, more a factor of does the manager have a pro-running philosophy and, and trying to see not only that, but also the matchup of you know, opposing pitcher, opposing catcher. And you know, maybe if you get a Noah Syndergaard and Kurt Suzuki battery for the Angels, um, then know that the other team will definitely try and run with, with those two. I was looking at it just because I was curious, and there's been f- almost 1,400 stolen bases this year in just under 100,000 plate appearances. And in previous years, it seemed, especially as stolen bases fell out of the uh, business altogether, but just last year, for instance, we had 2,200 stolen bases in uh, almost 200,000 uh, plate appearances. So it seems like the rate of stolen bases is, is increasing pretty substantially. And I wonder if that's going to start slipping because at first early in the year, the ball wasn't flying. So everybody figured, well, we got to manufacture some runs and now it is flying. So I wonder if they're going to scale back on that. Yeah. That's, um, and then if, you know, the weather is warming up and that provides a little bit more, uh, uh, positive hitting environment for, for home runs and things like that. Um, that, that'll be something definitely to watch. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Steve Gardner from USA Today. And Steve, a week or so ago, you published a piece at USA Today forecasting an underperforming player at each position that you thought was going to have a second half surge. What methods did you use to choose those players? Well, it started out, the idea came to me as to try and figure out why some of my hitters were underachieving um, so far this season and whether... You know, uh, I could just write that off as as a early season fluke, or if there was something underlying in uh, in those guys' performances or their plate approach or whatever. So I, I went and looked at some of those those players first of all that I had on on some of my teams, and just looking for you know something positive to take away. And um, so to, kind of almost to say, I, I know I was right about this guy. Now, why isn't he performing as well as I thought? And so that's that's kind of how the, the column got started. And uh, so I just went through at each position to, to see if, uh, you know, there was, there was any reason why these players were struggling, whether it's uh, plate approach, bad luck, or just a lack of, of health overall. Well, you did it position by position, so we'll quickly whip through it and just pick one guy or as many guys as you want at each. Uh, whom did you choose for the second half surge at catcher? Uh, I picked Cabert Ruiz of the Nationals just because he's making good contact. Uh, he doesn't strike out a lot, and um, his expected uh, batting average and slugging percentage were much higher than uh, than what he had at the, po- at the point that I wrote the column. Uh, slugging percentage should have been expected 462 and and he was in the three, you know, maybe a uh, hundred points lower than that. So, looking for him to maybe have some of those doubles turn into home runs over the season, uh, uh, the second half of the season hasn't happened yet uh, in the last couple of weeks. But um, I'm I'm hopeful. How about at first base? First base, I picked Brandon Belt. Um, uh, great season last year, but again, injuries 
really, I think, the, the big driver for his underperforming. So getting healthy helps. Um, I think he had a home run the other night, Wednesday night. So, you know, maybe his, his swing is coming back. Had a great year, and I, I love his on-base percentage and plate discipline. So uh, I think he, can still has, he has time to put that all together. Second base? Uh, second base was Whit Merrifield. Um, he did heat up a little bit after I wrote that, but uh, toe injury, and uh, now he's going to miss the uh, Toronto series um, because of his vaccination status. So I guess the jury's still out on, uh, on Whit. And at third? At third, I, I picked Luis Urias of the uh, the Brewers, and um, partly because he missed the first part of the season with injury. But this, I think, was one of the bigger uh, the bigger hits that I had on this column. Um, since I wrote it, he had four home runs, twelve RBIs in in two weeks. So I think him just getting back to you know his breakout that he had last year um, seems to me that he's he's getting healthy and he can produce. How about a shortstop? Shortstop, uh, <laughs> this was maybe this was a, a wish casting bit by me, but um, Javier Baez, I, I just can't believe he's been so bad in Detroit. I know it's not a great park for hitting, but um, he stole a base uh, right around the time, you know, his first base of the season, right around the time that I was uh, putting this together. And so, you know, for Baez, it's still it, numbers are still bad. Detroit is still bad, and uh, I don't know. I think I may count that as a whiff. And how about in the outfield? Outfield, I picked Jesse Winker. Um, a little bit of an injury issue. I uh, didn't count on him getting suspended for an entire week because of his part in that brawl with the Angels. Um, but he did hit two home runs and a doubleheader against the Nationals uh, on Wednesday. So I, I'm, I'm still thinking that Jesse Winker has a, a decent second half coming. How about a starting pitcher? The starting pitcher I picked was Kevin Gossman of the Blue Jays. And um, I, I think one of the things I, I looked at his expected stats and and the difference between what they were and uh, and what he had at the time was just a huge gap. And sure enough, uh, after I wrote that, he went out, tossed a, a sh seven shutout innings against the Red Sox, uh, two more shutout innings, and then got hit with a batted ball on his ankle and uh, has been out since then. I think he should be returning soon. But um, I, I like that call. Gossman's numbers did not reflect how well he's been pitching this season. So huge second half I'm expecting for him. I, I would even go so far as to say if I could trade for a pitcher right now, I would look at Kevin Gossman. And it wasn't as though his numbers were really bad, but they're just not as good as they really should have been. Yep, exactly. And uh, the one loss record, I know we shouldn't look at that, but wins count in this, uh, in this game of ours, and uh, they hadn't been great. So, but, uh, I think that'll, that'll improve. And you'd think going into the season, I know my thinking was they're going to score roughly 12 million runs. So right. you know, a guy who can get deep into games, which Gaussman does pretty regularly is a pretty good bet to get wins, but, uh, gosh, who knew that they were going to be so awful in relief pitching and well, who's your relief pitcher speaking of which? Uh, I, I picked Tanner Scott in Miami, and um, and sure enough, I like the fact that he, he has a, a ton of strikeouts and was just starting to get comfortable in the closer's role that had been up in the air for the most part um, for the Marlins all season long. And sure enough, since then, five saves, uh, two wins, and a, an ERA at 2.35. So I, I'll count that one as a win, too. 
That is a win for sure. Is there going to be the opposite side of the story over performers who you think are going to sag in the second half? That's that's a good idea. Um, and and I'm, af- I'm almost afraid to do that because if I start looking at my fantasy teams that are doing well and the players that are doing well, um, I may not like what I see uh, if uh, they're overachieving. So uh, we'll, we'll have to uh, tread carefully there. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Steve Gardner from USA Today. And last Tuesday, Steve, you had another piece in USA Today that had a really interesting premise. You took the stats of all the players in the last 365-day period. So you combined the end of the 2021 season with the start of the 2022 season, which I've always found interesting because of the arbitrariness of what we call the season, but this is still roughly 162 games. It's just a different 162 games. And then you picked the all-star performers over that period rather than just from the first half of uh, this year. How'd you come up with this idea? Well, I I can't claim the idea as my own because my predecessor at uh, Sports Weekly and Baseball Weekly, John Hunt, was... uh, the pioneer of that. And, um, it it took a lot more, I'll tell you what, it took him a lot more work to come up with those stats and and calculate them. All I do is I basically, uh, email Matt Cedarholm of baseball HQ and, uh, he does the number crunching and has for the last several years. So I really am much indebted to Matt for being able to, uh, to make my job a lot easier. And once he sends me the sheet, you know, the spreadsheet with all of those, then, I can take a look at where each of the players stand in each of the categories and uh, sort of, you know, use my own standards and and pick the the best at each position for each league over the past full season. And it it started from um, some of the all-stars that we've seen, you know, the, the Brian LaHares of the world that have a great three months and get named to the all-star team and we never really hear from them again. You know, did did he deserve that? Maybe if, you know, you expanded the time to be a full season where we can recognize, you know, hitting 35 home runs over a full season is pretty good. Driving in over 100 runs is pretty good. So giving us a point of reference and then looking at the stats in that larger context, I think is is much more helpful. Yeah, and much more accurate too. That That's what I liked about it. And that's what I've always liked about the idea of shifting the start and finish of seasons to look at sort of rolling 160 game averages or something like that, or 150 game averages, whatever it is you want to use, because you can get a real good idea of what the what the player is actually doing in those longer time frames. And it gives you, I think, a better idea than what he's, they're doing over three months. At American League Catcher, you said Sal Perez is still the man because of his huge 2021 but that this year's leading vote-getter, Alejandro Kirk of Toronto, could snare the crown when you repeat this exercise next year. What is it about Captain Kirk that uh, makes you say so? Well, I, I just think his his contact skills um, and his regular playing time, which includes a lot of DH at-bats, and that's what helped Sal Perez last year. I mean, a catcher who plays in almost a hundred, you know, almost every game of the season, I think he ended up with like 158 or something like that. Um, being able to DH and on days that he doesn't catch, um, is a huge advantage because, uh, we know catchers just don't produce as, as much as other positions Perez did last year. So that was kind of, you know, I thought he was the fantasy MVP to tell you the truth. And, and I think Kirk, can do similar things, um, hits for average exceptionally well, scores a lot of runs. And uh, for those reasons, um, 
I think uh, I think he's got a leg up on on everybody else going uh, going into next year. So if you had to sort of rank in uh, in a straight draft format the catchers, would you put Alejandro Kirk now first overall, or are you still looking at Will Smith and guys like that? Yeah, in the National League, you've got young guys that do play often, and with the DH coming to the National League, they can take some of those benefits as well. So, uh, you know, Wilson Contreras, JT Romuto, Will Smith, those three guys, I think, will probably be at the top of the rankings for me next year. But um, Kirk will be right after that, and uh, and Perez will, as long as he can can come back and and be fine. Um, he'll be in there too, but, uh, yeah, Kirk and, and don't forget about Adley Rutschman too. He's begun to heat up, uh, after a very slow start when he was called up to Baltimore. In the national league at first base, you found a tight three-way race, which is actually pretty reflective of just this year as well. Who was in the race and how did you finally come out picking a winner? Yeah, it was tough because Pete Alonso has had a great season. As I mentioned earlier, Freddie Freeman is always outstanding but Paul Goldschmidt, that was kind of the, the surprise to me when I looked at the stats for the full season with the first baseman. How Goldschmidt you know, had the highest batting average of everybody at 338, um, had 39 home runs, 122 RBIs, and uh, he was tied with Freeman for the lead overall in runs scored at 117. So uh, combining all of those things uh, for a guy that maybe some people thought was past peak once he left Arizona and came to, uh, to St. Louis. Um, I mean, that's pretty good at age 34 to be putting up those kinds of numbers. Very impressive. So uh, I had to lean toward Goldschmidt there. I took Paul Goldschmidt in one league and it's my worst league. And he's just, he's doing great uh, things and not helping a bit. It's just because my the rest of my team sucks. In both leagues, third base was something of a runaway. I think most of us could guess who, but who were your two third basemen? Yeah, it's uh, Jose Ramirez, although he's he slumped a little bit um, recently, but still the way that he steals bases, hits home runs, drives in runs, and is in there all the time. Um, just a little bit better. Rafael Devers had some good numbers too, but uh, it, it was because of the steals for, for Roto purposes. Jose Ramirez, no question. And then Manny Machado um, hit over 300. Um, ranked fourth at the position in home runs. And he's stealing some bases too, which you don't get a whole lot from a third baseman, um, especially one that hits for power. So Machado far and away, although Austin Riley's had a, a very good past full uh, season, uh, Machado's still better. I'm very concerned. I've got Machado in my TGFBI league, and I'm very concerned about that knee injury as, as potentially slowing him down. That's true. And, um, you know, he didn't when he didn't go on the injured list and and stayed on the team, but didn't play for those of us in labor, for instance, where if he's active, he's got to be in your active lineup. That was a killer. And um, you worry about players that have those kind of, of chronic injuries that take a long time to heal. And I'm, I understand right there where you're coming from. I read a story that said he's quite proud of the fact that he hasn't been on the DL since forever and that they, he went to the team and said, you know, I think I'm going to be back sooner than the 10 days. So uh, how about you just don't put me on the, on the IL? And they said, yes. And I think he missed nine instead of 10. So it wasn't like they uh, benefited too much. And certainly, as you said, lots of fantasy owners didn't benefit. And that's for sure. You called your American league starting pitchers, a changing of the guard. So who's in and why are they in the Vanguard? 
All right. Well, uh, Alec Manoa, certainly of the Blue Jays, um, has all the makings of an ace pitcher. Um, you know, willingness to throw a lot of innings to stay in the game and, and uh, is good enough to be able to do that. And I like Shane McClanahan, too, um, at Tampa Bay. I mean, those guys, uh, great strikeout rates and bulldog mentality, and they've been healthy and uh, awesome while they've been in the, uh, you know, been in the lineup and been in the league to, uh, to where you've got the, uh, the old school Garrett Cole aces, you know, guys like that, um, that just aren't performing as well as these young guys. So I, I kind of view that as this is the start of maybe a nice long run for both of them, because I like them both long-term. And a little later on in part two, Steve will be talking about Alec Manoa in another context, uh, having to do with uh, the changing of the way starting pitching works in Major League Baseball period. Uh, Let's close this one with uh, relievers. You raised some eyebrows, I think, giving your nod as the American League closer to Emmanuel Class A, and you said, no one can touch him. Why the big kudos for Class A? Well, I just love the fact that that he has a high strikeout rate and a very low walk rate. And when you put those two together, especially when, you know, he's the no doubt lockdown closer in Cleveland, um, he just comes out ahead of everybody. The, the closer situations in the American League are are unsettled just about everywhere you look. Um, but it's not in Cleveland. And uh, Class A has been lights out all season long, even going back to the second half of last year. The the numbers ERA below two. Um, he's just he's just outstanding, and uh, I think he could give everybody else a run for their money as the number one closer next year. Well, Steve, uh, I was hoping this would be interesting, and of course it has been really interesting so far. Uh, Let's take a quick break. I've got to get to Nick and Ray with the National League and American League news updates, and then we'll finish our discussion in part two, talking about some hot takes, and uh, maybe we'll throw in a little bit of trade talk. Sounds great, Patrick. I I will stay right here. Steve Gardner writes about fantasy sports and real sports for USA Today. He'll be back later on in the show, but coming up we have our Market Watch player news reports. Nick has the National League news, Ray has the American League next on Baseball HQ Radio. But right now I'd like to talk about one of the items that lets us say Baseball HQ is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's the speculator column, and this week analyst Ryan Bloomfield announces his all-second-half team. And he has his facts and flukes spotlight deep dive on Tony Gonsolin, which is extremely timely. It's the Speculator column and the Facts and Fluke Spotlight, a couple of great resources available all the time when you're a member of the team at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League Report. And leading off, it's our National League News and our old friend, Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups Analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. And it's always good to have you. We'll start in Washington, where closer Tanner Rainey, no longer the closer, he's gone to the IL with a sprained ulnar collateral ligament. Looks like he could be out for the year. Phil Hertz covered the story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. So what happens with Tanner Rainey on the shelf? Well, and Rainey actually went straight to the 60-day IL, so uh, probably is out for the year. Um, and possible Tommy John surgery in, surgery in his future. It was announced on uh, Thursday that uh, 
Kyle Finnegan is going to get the first shot at closing. Uh, that's what we had speculated, and that, that was, in fact, announced on Thursday. Uh, Finnegan was Rainey's primary setup pitcher, has pitched reasonably well, 3.22 XCRA, uh, strikeout minus walk percentage of 19%, 127 BPV. So he'll get the first shot at it, but certainly is not, not uh, any kind of a sure thing, and the Nationals have other options. Uh, they recalled, uh, recalled Tyler Clippard from AAA. Clippard has saved at least three major league games every season since 2019. Uh, Steve Shishik has 133 career saves, but only one since 2019. And the Nationals recently brought up a uh, closer and one-time closer in waiting Hunter Harvey. So they have some options. They'll give Finnegan the first shot. That's what I expect too. And uh, I don't want to uh, sound like I'm expecting this to happen, but don't lose sight of the fact that Sean Doolittle is still on the roster. He's on the 60-day uh, IL. He has a left elbow sprain. And of course, he is a left-hander. And he won't be activated until the end of July at the earliest. But Sean Doolittle has 75 saves from 2017 to 2019 on Washington. And gosh, the stranger things could happen than Sean Doolittle turning up with some save opportunities as they go down the stretch. Not that there's going to be much action in Washington going down the stretch. Uh, in Los Angeles, uh, another bullpen situation. It looked like Bruce Dark Greaterall was kind of moving his way into the picture for saves with the uh, inconsistencies of Craig Kimbrell, but uh, Greaterall has gone down to the IL on Thursday with right shoulder inflammation. He said he felt pressure throwing in his, in his throwing shoulder while throwing before Wednesday's game at the Cardinals. Last pitched on Sunday against the Cubs, uh, getting the save in an 11-9 win after allowing no hits over two innings and striking out one batter. So 37 appearances this year. Our Gratterall is 2-3 and three with a 3.35 ERA, 35 strikeouts and 40 in a third innings pitched. Dodgers recalled right-hander Reyes Maranta to replace Gratterall on the roster. It's his fourth stint with the Dodgers this season. In 13 games, he is 0-0 with a 3.68 ERA. Uh, looks like the, uh, the probably his first shot, uh, if, if Kimbrell continues to struggle, will be Ellen Phillips. Phillips got the save on Wednesday night with Kimbrell pitching the eighth inning. And on Thursday, they, they flip-flopped that. Kimbrell pitched the ninth uh, in a non-save situation. Phillips pitched the eighth. So looks like Phillips is the guy to get the first shot. Uh, he's pitched very, very well so far this season. Uh, at this point, uh, 1.50 ERA, 41 strikeouts in 36 innings pitched to 155 BPV. Moving along, uh, we talked about the Pittsburgh outfield situation in past editions of Baseball HQ Radio, but now the worst possible news, uh, Brian Reynolds, their all-star outfielder, has gone to the IL, and I don't know what the situation is. Maybe you can enlighten us. Uh, Rick Green for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. Uh, Brian Reynolds out for a while. This is terrible news for Pittsburgh. It is indeed. Uh, it uh, could be a, a, about a month, according to some reports. Uh, Jake Marisnik was activated from the IL and started in center field for Pittsburgh on Monday and Tuesday, and we expect him to see most of Reynolds' lost playing time. Uh, Jake Suwinski, Ben Gamble, Diego Castillo also will be in the outfield mix in the immediate future for Pittsburgh. Uh, Suwinski and Castillo offer some home run upside, but uh, be a downside. Uh, Marisnik has just 52 at-bats in 2022, looking to get above the Mendoza line at this point. He's a career 227 hitter with 62 homers and in 1,952 career at-bats. Uh, Gamble returned from the I.L. earlier this month and has not found his 2021 form. He's uh, hitting five for 26 with just one home run. Yeah, Marisnik, it seems, uh, 
every time I see his name, I think, oh, Jake Marisnik is up. He's been in the big league since 2013. Here and there, never really amassing a lot of at-bats. I, I see sort of 300 is kind of his peak in, in a couple of different years. And really, as for as much time as he spent in the major leagues, he really hasn't been too outstanding, with the exception of 24 stolen bases in 2015. But that's a young man's game. And uh, Jake Marisnik at this point is 31 years old, so uh, not a young man. No, he's not. I wouldn't expect too many steals from him the, the rest of the way. And we're going to talk about Brian Reynolds with Steve Gardner in part two of our expert interview. Moving along to Milwaukee, the Brewers got some good news. They activated outfielder Hunter Renfro from the IL, designated for assignment right-hander Chichi Gonzalez. Uh, Tom Kephart covering these moves for playing time today. Uh, what happens with Renfro's return? Renfro's return to the starting right field role uh, provides a power boost for a Milwaukee outfield that has been thinned recently with both Renfro and outfielder Tyrone Taylor uh, on a, has had a concussion sideline. Uh, utility player Jace Peterson likely will see reduced playing time in the outfield after gaining that playing time while Renfro was absent. Uh, Renfro's free-swinging ways mean he's B.A. is subject to fluctuations, uh, but power remains his primary asset. Yeah, Renfro's an interesting guy from that point of view. The, the search for power in Milwaukee is kind of surprising to me because of the park. You know, the, we expect a lot of home runs there, but they they really didn't have an, an awful lot of guys getting an awful lot of home runs, but we're projecting him for 15 home runs the rest of the way, albeit with, as you suggested, not an outstanding batting average, but the projection's 239, and you and I are both old enough to know. Uh, remember a time when two thirty nine meant you were headed for the bench, if not for the minors. But these days, two thirty nine is borderline acceptable. Yeah, it is indeed, and a three hundred two on base percentage projected for him the rest of the way, and that's not that's not bad. I mean, that's not going to be uh, not going to put you in the top of the league in, in OBP. But if you've got a balance on the other end, then there's something that, that it's sometimes a very useful guy if he can hit fifteen home runs. And he has mashed a little bit uh, in the last few years. He's had a few slugging percentages over 500 or, or right near it. So if you're looking for a power bat and you can't do any better, maybe look for a trade. Hunter Renfro will be rostered most leagues, I suspect. But uh, depending on your league rules, he might be available in the free agent pool and could be worth a look. He's certainly going to get playing time. In Cincinnati, they got some good news as well, activating catcher Tyler Stevenson from the IL. They sent catcher Mark Collisvery back to AAA. Uh, Tom Kephart covered the Reds for playing time today. Uh, I'm just going to presume Stevenson gets right back behind the plate. Yeah, very definitely returns to the starting catcher role. He was ranked among the National League's most productive catchers when he's been on the field. Uh, has had a very, a very fine season so far this year with a, a 323 batting average, six homers, 35 RBIs, and 161 at bats. So, certainly has been a, an outstanding uh, hitter so far. Uh, probably will not continue that pace the rest of the season. We're projecting a 270 batting average uh, as uh, his, uh, his uh, XBA is not nearly as high as that, uh, uh, that 323 average, a currently XBA of 259 and a 42% hit rate. So uh, probably the batting average will come down, but a very solid, certainly, replacement behind the plate. And the Reds will be definitely glad to have him back. We're also projecting him for seven home runs, but maybe a bit of a cautionary tale. His power index is slightly above league average at 112, but his expected power index is actually below league average at 97. So I think maybe if you're looking at Tyler Stevenson, you should expect kind of league average power, seven or eight home runs down the stretch here, but not much more than that. Uh, the Padres made some news 
Nick, I thought this was pretty interesting. They promoted a young outfielder named Estuary Ruiz to the major league level, and Jock Thompson covers the Padres for playing time today. This Ruiz, not really much of a hitter, but boy, he got them wheels. Yeah, he's got some wheels. Uh, if you followed his high minors performance, you're already aware of the unreal 60 stolen bases, nine caught stealings, uh, improved plate patience that uh, fuel his fantasy attractiveness. Uh, right-handed hitter was a starter in center field versus Colorado. Lefty Austin Gomber on Tuesday for his major league debut, replacing struggling lefty bat Trent Grisham. Uh, with with Jurickson Profar and Will Myers expected to return from the IL either sometime this week or just after the All-Star break, uh, Ruiz will get at least a brief audition to see what he can do. And now that he's on the 40-man roster, we're comfortable in, in bumping up his playing time for the rest of 2022. Uh, Padre outfield has been a glaring problem on the club, and uh, Ruiz has uh, started off that, that, that first night two for four, but caught stealing in an attempt to swipe third base. Uh, 0 for four on uh, on Wednesday night, uh, but then on Thursday, uh, only one hit, but uh, a double, promptly stole third base, and then scored. So uh, he's beginning to show them something of what he can do. It'll be interesting to see what they do with him uh, the rest of the way. And from a fantasy perspective, if you think the guy is going to steal, we have him down for 10 bases, and that's in somewhat limited playing time, only 100 at-bats for the balance of the season. If he sort of forces his way into the lineup a little more regularly, he could get, you know, 250 at-bats. All of a sudden, you're looking at 25 stolen bases. He could be the second half's John Birdie. Yeah, he very well could be. And, you know, he he, he was leading the minors in runs scored as well. And uh, the Padres have had, had trouble scoring runs. Uh, he showed what he could do last night with with uh, that that double and a stolen base, and then scoring on a sack fly, uh, and so may be able to do something for the Padres if he can continue to get on base. In San Francisco, they made a whole passel of moves. Nick, uh, they started by DFAing left-handed reliever Jake McGee, who was their closer not so long ago. They put right-handed reliever Zach Littell on the IL. They activated outfielder Luis Gonzalez from the 10-day IL. Uh, recalled another reliever, right-hander Junior Marte. Jake Crumpler covering all of this stuff for playing time today. A lot of moving parts here. A whole lot of moving parts here, and some of them pretty notable. Uh, let's start with McGee, who was surprisingly DFA'd just a year removed from a 31-save season that featured a 2.72 ERA. Uh, but he's 35 years old. He has struggled mightily on the mound so far and struggled with injuries. So far this season, just 21 and a third innings pitched. And those are very ineffective innings, a 7.17 ERA. So we'll remove his playing time uh, percentage as it's likely to get, he's likely to get claimed, uh, traded, or uh, outrighted to AAA or even released. The other removal from the 26-man roster was Littell, landing on the 15-day IL with a strained left oblique just one day after being recalled from the minors. He'll miss at least the next month with the injury. His playing time will remain unchanged until a firm timetable is set for his return. But there was some positive news. Uh, Luis Gonzalez was uh, came activated from the IL after a three-week stint dealing with a low back strain. He uh, DH'd in his first game back, expected to fill in versus righties uh, there and in the outfield, resulting in a slight boost in his playing time. The 26-year-old rookie sported a 129 uh, WRC plus through with three long balls and seven steals in 180 plate appearances prior to the injury. So there's something there with Luis Gonzalez. Uh, if you're, if you're looking for some outfield help, maybe worth keeping an eye on, especially those stolen bases. Uh, additionally, Marty was recalled to directly replace Littell. 
He's in the same boat as a few other relievers, including Jose Alvarez and Mauricio Lovera. They're constantly being shuffled between AAA and the majors uh, and the IL, which causes them to have a similar share of uh, playing time percentage and no alterations when their roster status changes. Lovera and Marty will receive the majority of the playing time opened up by McGee's DFA uh, as the current major leaguers, but expected to be spread around more evenly as the new bullpen hierarchy is formed. And uh, Jarling Garcia should see increased hold opportunities as the release core's top lefty. Yeah, a lot of things to consider here. And, of course, San Francisco is pretty adventuresome with the way they handle their bullpen, a much more modern approach than you're the closer, you're the eighth inning guy. Everybody gets a, a shot here and a shot there, depending on matchups and, and other factors. So I don't think at this point, if I was looking for saves, I just – Nick, I think I'd just look beyond San Francisco's bullpen, frankly, because I think you're playing a mugs game trying to pick out which one guy's going to get a lot of saves there, much as you would if you were looking at Tampa. Yeah, I think you're right. It's one of those situations where where they're going to shift around a lot, and uh, you can't, as a fantasy manager, if you're needing saves, probably can't count on that that situation at all. Seems like we've been talking about the Philadelphia outfield uh, on every edition of Baseball HQ Radio in our National League news segment, but here we are again. The Phillies are still dealing with the fallout from the Bryce Harper injury, of course, and we're looking at a couple of guys seeing bigger roles after the injury. Uh, Brent Hershey covers the team in playing time tomorrow, roster forecasting. What's his analysis? Well, one of those guys is Jerry Hall, um, who was uh, was torching AAA and then was called up to the majors since uh, receiving the call-up. On June 29th, he started 11 of 12 games, 10 of those at DH uh, through Monday of this past week. He's popped four homers in 50 at-bats, and though his contact rate has been hovering around 70%, he's walked just once. Uh, the lineup needs his punch, but expects some growing pains in the B.A. department as uh, major league pitchers learn to exploit the holes in his swing. The other player emerging into a more prominent role is utility man Matt Veerling, who has started 19 of the 29 games since Hartford's injury. Positional versatility has been a godsend. He's played both second base and third base, both corner outfield spots, but has recently logged most of his time in center field, where he's begun to take the lion's share of playing time away from Odubel Herrera. Really is making better contact this season than in his major league stand in 2021, 72% a year ago, 78% this year. Uh, his intriguing stat cast numbers have ticked up a bit. A barrel rate from 3.8% to 6.5%. Average exit velocity from 91.5 miles per hour to 91.9 miles per hour. Max EV from 111.5 to 112.1. While no burner, he's played a passable defensive center field here in the short term as the team assesses their needs with the uh, trade deadline approaching. It will be interesting to see what they do uh, at the trade deadline in Philadelphia. It's going to be an interesting week, I think, as we come into, of course, not only the all-star break, Nick, but the trading deadline is looming at the end of July or the very first couple of days of August, I don't remember, but it's right around then. So plenty of action, I think, to be cognizant of in the National League. So we'll be looking forward to talking with you again every Friday, given the National League news. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and our Baseball HQ co-general manager and columnist Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Glad to be here, Patrick. It ended the first half on us already here. Coming right up to Sunday is the end of, well, it's not the end of the first half, really, is it? No, we that was really like two weeks ago, wasn't it? Yeah, why, why don't they have the all-star break 
at the 81 game mark or, you know, the, the Saturday or the Monday after the 81 game mark or something like that. It seems odd that we always call it the first half, second half, but it's really not the first half, second half. One of my friends who works there will hate me for saying this, but my answer to all of those things about why are they doing something stupid is usually because Fox wants it that way. So, <laughs> Oh, I suppose. Yeah. I never thought of that, but uh, actually I was listening to a podcast the other day where they were discussing the uh, big amalgamations going on in college football. And interestingly enough, somebody finally said, well, you know, what's the root cause of all this? And they said, because Fox and ESPN want it this way. Yeah. ESPN so. has the SEC, Fox has the Big Ten, or yeah. I forget how yeah. the way around. But yeah, exactly. That's where the arms race comes from. And, and Al's TV network and body shop has all the uh, minor conferences and nobody cares. <laughs> That's why they're all bailing. I'm a Patriot League alum, and amazingly, there's no bidding war for that TV contract. <laughs> <laughs> Is that like Holy Cross and schools like that? Exactly. Holy Cross and Bucknell and Colgate and uh, the like. Yeah. Well, on to fantasy baseball, as, as amusing as this is. In Kansas City, uh, second baseman Whit Merrifield, nothing amusing here. It looked like he might be getting his mojo back, Ray. He was uh, kind of rebounding from a very slow start, but now he's come up with a bone bruise and ligaments swelling in his right toe. One of our new analysts, Ryan Williams, covered the story for Playing Time today. What are the effects here with Whit Merrifield on the shelf? Yeah, so I guess this flared up for him on Sunday, and then, unfortunately for him, there was a doubleheader on Monday, and he had to sit that out, and uh, then he was st- he still stayed day-to-day. Uh, there was no IL move before the All-Star break, uh, but I guess he's in a boot, and we're not going to know. Uh, we're not even necessarily expecting him to play at all this weekend, and I think you know, the best hope at this point is that he's back in the lineup after the all-star break. But I think that's still somewhat less than 100% certain. Merrifield's injury ended a streak of 553 consecutive games played. And I looked it up. He's just 2,079 short of Cal Ripken Jr.'s record, if you're keeping score at home. Uh, in the three games that Merrifield missed, so far at least, uh, Nicky Lopez has taken his spot at second, and Emmanuel Rivera, who was kind of sharing the third base spot with uh, Nicky Lopez, has started full-time at third base. And actually, he's been looking pretty good. Yeah, uh, our Ryan Hoover talked about Rivera in playing time tomorrow, and you're right about the uh, the way the dominoes have fallen there. If you think back, you know we've been covering the Roy- the Royals infield all year, and it started with Bobby Witt at third and Mondesi at shortstop, and then when Mondesi got hurt, they finally put Witt back at his natural position of shortstop, which opened up third base, and as you say, that had been Rivera and Lopez, but for the last week with Merrifield out, it's now Lopez at second and they're leaving Rivera alone at third. And the sort of news there is that Rivera was probably winning that, you know, battle of Titans between him <laughs> and Lopez, uh, you know, for the upper hand and the third base job. Uh, you know, he had, he started the last uh, eight games overall, the last six at third base uh, in the last week, he's been sla- been hitting 414 with a OPS over 1100 more walks than strikeouts, a couple of home runs, a double, hard hit balls. It's not, you know, not only is he making contact and getting base hits in a, you know, spike of hit rate kind of thing, but he's he's making better contact than, well, frankly, Nicky Lopez ever does, right? Um, So the, the swing discipline metrics, you know, back up that even the strong walk to strikeout ratio isn't a fluke. He's 
only swinging at the strike zone, his chase rate is down, et cetera. And, you know, it really seems like in this Royals lineup that A, has had trouble scoring runs all year, and B, is sort of embracing this youth movement with first Bobby Witt and then Melendez and Pasquitino. You know, Emmanuel Rivera kind of fits into that. So it certainly seems like there's some open runway for him in the second half here. Ryan Hoover mentioned that the part of that runway is the likelihood of Kansas City making a trade. And of course, uh, Whit Merrifield being on the shelf is going to really limit his trade opportunities. And it seems like a uh, trade of Andrew Benintendi wouldn't move the needle a lot as far as infield playing time is concerned. I could be wrong. Then maybe they'll shift more guys around. But uh, what sort of trade are we thinking about here? Yeah, I, th- I think. Merrifield is the one you think about if he can get healthy. Benintendi has been sort of more publicly bandied about in trade discussions. There was some uh, some chatter about the Yankees being interested in him and that his quote-unquote empty batting average would fit that, uh, you know, a, sort of a table-setting role in that Yankee lineup. But uh, the, the, the news of Benintendi being on the unvaccinated list, I think, kind of scuttled the Yankees' interest because uh, you know, there's a good chance come – uh, you know, maybe not during the regular season, but there's a good chance in the playoffs they're going to have to play a game or more in Toronto. And that, uh, you know, acquiring somebody who you know is not available for that game is probably not uh, a wise move. So I think we're back to, I mean, Benetton could go somewhere else for sure. Uh, to your point, that may not necessarily free up uh, Lopez and Rivera for multiple opportunities, but Merrifield, Merrifield leaving or Merrifield having to stay on the D, on the IL after the All-Star break would allow this Lopez at second, Rivera at short, or Rivera at third, excuse me, would allow that arrangement to continue for a while. It just popped into my mind, but if if Benintendi were to be traded and they weren't looking to test out some of their prospects, Merrifield could end up out in the outfield. He's been there before, so maybe that's the pathway for for uh, Lopez and even more importantly for Rivera to find playing time because of Benintendi leaving. Yeah, sure. There's a there's a potential cascade effect there. My hesitation with that is if this bone bruise, whatever else is going on in his foot. Uh, lingers, then you know, shagging flies in the outfield might be a worse idea than playing second base. But uh, you know, if we operate on the assumption that this uh, injury is a temporary situation for Merrifield, then sure, he could pick up some uh, some time shagging flies. Well, you'd mentioned Benintendi and the non-vaccination status, and they actually had ten unvaccinated players go onto the restricted list for the weekend series in Toronto. Ten players unvaccinated. Uh, Ryan Williams covering the story for Playing Time today. They brought up eight guys, and it's something to do with pitchers and IL slots and stuff that they didn't replace all ten. But they brought up eight guys. Did any of the names of the prospects that got called up catch your eye? They really should have just you know sent a team plane to. Where's their triple A now? Is it still Omaha? I always call it Omaha. I think it's but, Omaha. Uh, yeah. they, they could have just sent the team playing to Omaha, dropped off the unvaccinated guys, picked up a whole new team, and continued on to Toronto, right? It was uh, it was pretty much that dramatic. Uh, but, yeah, as far as who caught my eye from the uh, comings and goings, uh, you know, Angel Zerpa is a pitcher who caught my eye, I think, only because he picked up two wins in four days this week, which is always notable. Uh, and I always like that AZ initial, you know, the first in – front and back into the alphabet. Uh, but no, in all seriousness, uh, you know, picked up a relief win on Monday against the Tigers uh, in uh, 
two innings of uh, bullpen work there. And then on Thursday, he started on, I mean, I think that's today's rest, isn't it? And through five, through five innings, uh, allowed only one earned run and picked up a win there, um, which was good for him because it evened out the karma from uh, one of his first career appearances last year when he uh, gave up no earned runs and still took a loss. So, you know, they, it, it, it's a quick correction from the gods of wins and losses for him. Anybody else? Yeah, this Brewer Hicklin character who pitch ran for Edward Edward Alvarez the other day. Uh, I'm particularly interested in Nick Prado, only because I've been watching him in uh, Dynasty League for a couple of years now. Uh, he was sort of the, uh, even back as recently as this past winter, he was sort of the heir apparent at first base. And we thought that, you know, when the, uh, when the Royals cleared, inevitably cleared out Carlos Santana, it would be to make room for Nick Prado. But then, you know, this Vinny Pasquantino came along and superseded Prado on the prospect list with by outperforming him at AAA this year. So it was Pasquantino who got the call when Santana left. But now we get a look at Prado anyway, if only for this weekend. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's off to a... Uh, three for three start in strikeouts, I believe. Is that what I saw in the box score last night? Yeah, that's right. Uh, three for three, all strikeouts. You know, Prado's one uh, was also taking outfield reps down in Omaha because Pasquantino moved up and apparently now he's the fixture at first base for the foreseeable future in Kansas City. So they thought, well, maybe Prado can go out there and play the field. So if uh, Ben Attendee gets moved, maybe that's a pathway for Prado. And I don't think his three for three and strikeouts, I mean, gosh, just stage fright for your first uh, time in the big leagues maybe accounts for some of that. But he wasn't that far behind Pasquantino in the minors as far as production, and Pasquantino was off the charts. But Prado was uh, OPSing like 850 or 890 or something like that. That's not nothing. Yeah, it wasn't that he lost the battle with Pasquatino. It's that Pasquatino just kind of busted the door down and said, no, 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 I'm going first, right? Um, and unfortunately, like you say, uh, the logjam there kind of forces Prado to the outfield because MJ Melendez is catching right now, but we sort of expect Perez, Sal Perez is going to be back at some point and is still in the long-term picture, which probably forces Melendez to DH. So, you know, Prado might be able to do some temporary DHing if he even sticks around past this uh, this weekend call up, but uh, if, if he's looking ahead to you know a September call up here and or a 2023 role, it's probably got to be in the outfield because Perez, Melendez, and Pasquantino are all going to be back. In New York, Ray, the Yankees placed right-hander Luis Severino on the 15-day IL with what they called a low-grade lat strain. If it were even less serious, would it be a kindergarten lat strain? I don't know. How much lower can you get than the low grades? Chris Olson covered the story for playing time today. Severino was pitching well so far this year, 347, 107, a bit, bit over a strikeout per inning. What are the Yankees going to do with Luis Severino out? As a connoisseur of low grades, I had follow-up questions as well. I wanted to know, I mean, C minus, D plus, you know, what are we, what are we, what are we talking about here? Give me, you know, let's not, let's not sugarcoat it. Tell me what we're dealing with. <laughs> so how is it that you're a connoisseur of low grades? Right, let's not get into that. It goes back to the Patriot, it goes back to the Patriot League. <laughs> All right. So anyway, what is New York going to do with Severino out? Yeah, so it seems like maybe the Yankees were proactive and uh, you know avoided a worse situation here as velocity was down in that Wednesday start. He gave up you know one of those episodes of three home runs in a row, and it was like the bottom of the Royals lineup or something like that. So uh, that was uh, that was not great. 
Um, and let's you know, let's not, not forget that coming back from the almost two full seasons lost to Tommy John, that Severino was probably working under some innings limits anyway, and probably needed an extended all-star break with the rotation shuffling, et cetera. So um, it wouldn't be surprising, even if this is a low-grade strain, that the Yankees take the opportunity to miss a start, miss a couple of starts, put him at the back end of the rotation, take advantage of an off day. You may not see him until the very end of July, even if it's not any worse than they're letting on now. So where they're going to go instead, uh, you know, J.P. Sears has been the sort of sixth starter spot guy lately. But the, the more interesting name to me is it might be the opening here for Domingo Herman, who uh, has been finishing up a rehab start stint in the minors and looked pretty good. Um, and previous comment from Aaron Boone, it said that they were going to bring him back into a sort of a multi-inning reliever role, but that was really just because they didn't have anywhere to put him in the rotation. So maybe we'll see a couple of Sears, Herman tag team starts, multi-inning opener kind of configurations while they're waiting on Severino. And it's, it's an opportunity for Herman to at least come in and say, uh, you know, don't forget about me. I can help. Down in Tampa, Ray, the Rays' nightmare injury season continued. Uh, right-hander Shane Boz goes back to the IL with an elbow strain. Chris Olson on the story for playing time today. What does this latest news mean for Shane Boz and his frustrated fantasy managers? Yeah, this is pretty bleak because it's uh, you know his second significant injury, both arm injuries, as I remember, of the season. Right, he missed. Uh, he was out for the start of the season through uh, through mid-May, so right. he's only been back for you know six or eight weeks and. Uh, now he's down again with the elbow. So you can imagine that the Rays are going to be very cautious here and they may not have a choice. It may be, it may be a significant injury. So I think we're, you know, we may not be quite at the point where we can consider him out for the season, but I think we can consider him not a significant contributor for the rest of the season, at least. Boz joins left-hander Josh Fleming going to the 15 day IL as well. What's the situation there? It's a little better, at least, because it's not an arm. It's uh, this is a it's an oblique, I believe, or a uh, adductor, or one of those. So uh, he's going to shut it down for a couple of weeks, and then do the routine of strengthening exercises, rebuilding arm strength, etc. But I mean, all that said, you know, everything I just described, starting in mid July, probably runs to late August or near September anyway. And what about preseason tout darling right-hander Luis Patino? So he's one of the people who's going to pick up the innings from Boz here. He, uh, you know, he was finishing up a rehab stint of his own. That was also an oblique. Uh, here on Friday, he's supposed to pitch tonight against the Orioles, I think. I don't know if it's technically a start or a typical raise opener situation, but he is the, he's going to get multiple innings there. Uh, but, you know, he also, uh, one of the reasons his rehab took so long, even after the oblique cleared up, is that he had a blister problem uh, late in his rehab, like within the last week or two. So that might impact uh, the length of his first outing or so here. But they're, you know, they're so hard up for pitching at this point that they needed to bring him back rather than give him the extra week for the All-Star break. And don't forget left-hander Jeffrey Springs probably coming back right after the All-Star break. And uh, I looked him up. He's had uh, 11 starts. He's 302-112 as a starter, which isn't bad. He's a 0 and 067 in relief and 253-105 overall. So Jeffrey Springs might be somebody to help as well. Uh, and 
Closer to your home, uh, Ray, the Red Sox expect to activate right-handed starter Nathan Eovaldi from the injured list to start against the Yankees tonight. We're speaking on Friday. Chris Olson, of course, covering for playing time today. And I noticed that one roster site has only three pitchers listed in the Boston rotation as of Friday. Pavetta, Crawford, and Sale, then grab the buckets and bail, I guess. What are the playing time ramifications of Eovaldi's return? Yeah, it's some much-needed stability for this Red Sox rotation. Uh, you know, Eovaldi's been out for going on a month now, uh, but you know he was very good before he went out with a 316 ERA, a 110 WHIP, uh, striking out more than a guy in inning while uh, you know while pounding the strike zone to the tune of uh, you know only a little over one walk per nine. Uh, so in terms of the post All Star break rotation, it'll start with Eovaldi, Pavetta, and Sale to get through this weekend with the Yankees. They'll probably rejigger, so those guys are uh, going first three out of the out of the, the gate after the break, I would imagine. Uh, and then after that, you'll look for Michael Walker, you'll look for Rich Hill, and then uh, Brian Bayo got sent down earlier this week. He didn't really acquit himself well in the couple of starts he got. In terms of which uh, rookies or journeymen to look at to fill the back end of that rotation. It's probably between Josh Winkowski, who just went on the DL after a start the middle of this week, but I think that's more procedural than anything. And Cutter Crawford, who has p- pitched well in a, a swingman role. So one or both of those guys will probably be the, uh, the, the, guy, the, the guys who fill out the rotation, at least until the trade deadline, and we'll see what happens then. And Waka and Hill, I read, were supposed to throw some bullpen sessions this weekend and should be back after the break. At least that's what the analyst I read said. And meanwhile, what about Garrett Whitlock? Is he a possible solution? They've been pretty clear for the last month or so that they, that he's ticketed for the bullpen when he comes back. I assume that's some combination of the fact that, as between you and I, we just named about nine starters uh, you know, who could uh, who who could potentially fill that rot- the the the, uh, the last couple of spots in those ro- the rotation. And let's not forget, this bullpen has been, you know, it was a tire fire for a while. It's now just a smoldering mass of something. Tanner Houck has at least stabilized the closer role, and I think will probably hold off Whitlock for that role. But Whitlock going back into the role he was in in the bullpen last year when he was a multi-inning reliever every every third day throwing you know do, doing setup work throwing the seventh and eighth that would help this pitching staff a lot because a lot of the guys we just talked about from Waka to Hill to the kids are going are generally five inning starters so there's a big need even with Hauk having stabilized the ninth inning to have more uh, quality options in the sixth seventh and eighth and I think that's what they're going to use Whitlock for. If so, Whitlock could be a nice pickup if you're looking for vulture wins with good ratios to go along with them. I like those kind of plays, especially in deeper leagues. Uh, finally, closer to my home, right-handed starter Kevin Gaussman returned to the Toronto rotation on Thursday. Uh, Tim Cavanaugh covered this. He's a new analyst as well. He covered it for playing time today. And, of course, the Jays' offense took the night off, as they usually do in Gaussman's pitching. But how did he look, and what happens in the Toronto rotation now that he's back? Yeah, Gossman had been really good all year. I mean, he had been fantastic to start the season through April and May. Uh, you know, was taken on, you know, was, was coming back to earth a little bit in June before that line drive went off his leg, his first start in July. So as a Gossman owner myself, I wasn't 
terribly heartbroken at him, you know, missing a start or two to sort of collect himself. Then it seemed like it was coming at a decent time for him, at least, uh, you know, but for the Jays, obviously the story was very different. They want him out there as much as they can. They had turned to Max Castillo for a spot start. Uh, and he kind of held his own for four and a third or so, uh, but he'll now go back into a multi-inning relief role. So Gossman only got the one start this week to shake off the rust before the all-star break, but with another, you know, week, presumably week plus until his next start, you got to figure he'll be good to go for the second half. Uh, and, you know, with a 287 ERA, um, which is a, probably a little bit out over, over his skis compared to uh, his 129 whip, uh, you know, he should be good to go and, you know, get back to hopefully that early season form when I think, what did he have, like 43 strikeouts before his first walk or something like that? Yeah, it was something like that. It was really sensational, which makes that 129 whip look a little weird, although he was also giving up a lot more hits in his last few starts. You mentioned that uh, the wheels started to wobble a little bit once he got out of May, and it just seemed a lot more vulnerable than he did in those first couple of months when he looked like, like a Cy Young contender. I wouldn't put him in that category now, but unless he bounces back. This is an interesting situation. Our mutual friend, Todd Zola, always says, if you've got an unusual combination of ERA and whip, trust the whip. And, right. and the ERA will catch up with the whip. But I wonder if here we might be tempted to trust the ERA and expect the whip to come down a peg or two. I think that's a possibility. And I don't know what you've heard locally, but I, I, I saw some chatter earlier this week that, um, and maybe it was wrapped up in the Montoya firing, et cetera, and the changes there. But I saw some chatter that Gossman might've been tipping. Uh, and that's why he had gone, uh, you know, his hit, his hit rate was off the charts because he pounds the strike zone. And if you know, it's going to be a strike and, you know what's coming. Suddenly the challenge for a hitter is not nearly as daunting as it usually is, right? And that possible tipping of pitches kind of dovetailed with something else that some of the Jays analysts were talking about uh, on the broadcast, TV and radio broadcast, and that was that the hitters had responded to Gaussman's tremendous sinker. He was getting a mountain of, of swing and miss and a lot of ground balls from the sinker because it's a very deceptive pitch. But of course, if you know it's coming and you see it uh, coming, you know it's going to be out of the strike zone when it gets to the plate, which is the whole purpose of it. And they were just laying off it and he was walking guys or giving up contact because he had to come in with something other than the sinker and get it into the strike zone and bang, they start hitting it all over the place. So if there's pitch tipping going on and he's corrected it, I think he could be a pretty good bet to uh, rebound a little bit more towards the April-May than what we saw in June. Uh, Toronto also activated catcher Danny Jansen from the injured list and optioned catcher Gabriel Moreno, one of their top prospects, actually one of the top prospects in all of baseball. So I presume Jansen just goes back to catching and uh, on we go. Yeah, I've got a question. questions for you about this too. Uh, I think that's right. Uh, you know, Alejandro Kirk is hitting the cover off the ball, so he's got to stay in the lineup. So presumably he's going to DH most of the time as Jansen's the better defensive catcher. Uh, and the, the cascading effects of that would be that Kevin Biggio and Rymel Tapia, who have been picking up some extra bats at DH or jumping out into the field and letting somebody else DH, probably lose the playing time here. But Biggio looked pretty good to me the last few weeks in this uh, fill-in role. And I'm wondering, you know, are they going to get a little more aggressive about finding ways to play him at different positions and keep him in the lineup? Or is or is he really going to go back to 
only getting a couple of starts a week here because more than Tapia, I think his bat was looking kind of interesting. And he swings from the left side, which is something they could use in that uh, Toronto batting order for sure. I think there's a couple of things going on there. And the first one is they've got a crowd at DH, as you mentioned. It's not only not only the uh, outfielders that you mentioned and, and uh, the catcher situation with Alejandro Kirk having to go to DH more now that Jansen's back. You know, I think if Jansen doesn't keep hitting, and he has been hitting reasonably well, I think there's a reasonable chance that he'll become the non-primary catcher and be kind of a regular backup catcher because Kirk's defense has really improved a lot, especially throwing to second. So I think there's a possibility there. I also have heard rumblings that uh, Jansen might be on the trade wire. The Jays have some areas where they need help. The bullpen, they could use another starter who couldn't. But Jansen's a pretty attractive piece if they want to, you know, move a move a trade piece out into the marketplace and get something back. And Moreno acquitted himself fairly well as a defender and as a as a batter in his brief time up. He got a, you know, pretty empty power, but he was batting 270, so it's not nothing for him either. I think there's some cards left for the Blue Jays to play, and on the course. Under the, the entire thing is under a cloud of uh, Montoyo being fired. Exactly. So you know some things get shifting there, and then you know just to dovetail this back to the prior conversation about Gossman and the pitchers. You know Gossman, the tipping or the whatever was going wrong with him does seem to have kind of correlated time wise to when Jansen went out and Kirk picked up the catching. So even though you're saying you know Kirk. Uh, you know, seem to be acquitting himself well defensively. You know, you know, it's always harder to quantify what the cascading effects of catching changes are on the pitching staff. And if Kirk somehow is, you know, embedded in the tipping or the, uh, you know, game calling or whatever that was getting Gossman tagged, I'll be curious to see if that gets better if, if, with Jansen back too. It will be. Uh, it's an interesting situation all the way around, and I know that the Blue Jays. One of the reasons that the front office gave for firing Charlie Montoya is they didn't think they were playing up to their potential, and I think they believe their potential is to be a solid playoff uh, contender. And they aren't playing like that right now. But it wasn't really the pitcher's fault. It's mostly that they just stopped hitting again, and that's something that they'll have to correct. And maybe that's something that they want to do. And they maybe hope. Danny Jansen's going to be a trigger for that because he was hitting well before he went on the DL as well. So there's, yeah, a lot of moving parts here and it'll be interesting to watch, but from a fantasy perspective, I think the, the, the guy to stash might be uh, Moreno if he's available in your league now that he's been dropped, because I wouldn't be surprised if Jansen, if Jansen gets out of here, they're not going to, you know, go get another uh, third string catcher. They're going to get Moreno back up and let him play and see what they've got there, I think. I think that's right. And then the other point that I was going to make that dovetails with that is, you know, going back to when Biggio was kind of, it might be a little bit frozen out here, but that's only just until the next injury. And, you know, Springer is seemingly always a pulled muscle away from missing a few days or worse, just to name one guy. There are plenty of other guys on that team who could pull a muscle. And if you get through the situation where first Jansen gets out of there and then three days later, someone else goes down. Now you've got room for like both Biggio and a lot of it back for Moreno. And yeah, you're right. There are a lot of paths for Moreno to, uh, you know, get a sneaky amount of at bats in August, September here. And as you say, he's kind of already shown he's ready to hit. 
Yeah, Teoscar Hernandez missed some time earlier this year with an injury, and he hasn't looked like himself since he's been back. He's been quite a disappointment. There may be a, a rest in his future, maybe a short DL stint to try to get straightened out in that regard. And another thing that they've been doing with Biggio is letting him play first base and letting Vladdy uh, DH a couple of times a week or, you know, three times every two weeks. So that's another bit of pressure they have to keep that DH spot at least a little bit open to allow for that half day off kind of thing that they figure that they have to have if they want to make sure that all these guys are ready to rumble in October. Yeah, boy, I, as you mentioned, T. Oscar, I remember in the off season, you know, really thinking that it was an interesting choice about Jordan Alvarez versus T. Oscar as like your pick in like the second round of a snake draft. And Boy, I got that one wrong a number of times, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. Well, up till this year, he, he was never hurt, and Alvarez was, you know, and I, uh, the, yeah. I think that was one of the rationales for it. Of course, in hindsight, it looks like a, a terrible choice, but that's what happens in fantasy baseball, I guess. And finally, before we go, uh, the Angels recalled outfielder Joe Adele from AAA, and they benched uh, a guy, bench outfielder Monty Harrison was DFA'd. Adele started Wednesday and Thursday because Mike Trout's uh, out with back spasms. Jock Thompson covers the Angels for playing time tomorrow and playing time today. What do we expect from Joe Adele on his 363rd shot at the big leagues? Yeah, here we go. One of these times is going to be the uh, the time it sticks, right? Uh, but so far, you know, two games back, he's he's three for nine. He stole a base. Uh, he's going to get some chances because, I mean, I saw Monty Harrison walking around this outfield the other night, and I was like, wow, how did he get there? Uh, he got DFA'd to call back. <laughs> hey, buddy, are you lost? <laughs> you, you flamed out with the Marlins seven times, but the angels were like, sure, come on in. Cause you know, we really don't want to call up Joe Adele, but finally they came to their senses and said, ah, we got to try Adele again. Uh, you know, which is of course, there's no guarantee. It's going to be better this time. And I think the one guarantee is his, uh, I think we established pretty clearly earlier in the season that, uh, when it comes to playing the outfield, he will be a circus, right? <laughs> There's that, and I think the other thing that it, they have to worry about with Joe Adele is they need something to spur the offense, but 35% strikeout rate doesn't spur anything except a lot of uh, run-free innings. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, especially because this weekend they're playing the Dodgers. Presumably you need to score some runs, and Trout is out with you know back spasms. That was what kind of really forced the call up here, I think. Uh, you know, I don't know if Trout's going to miss the whole weekend or not, but that was kind of the urgency to get Adele's bat, such as it is, back up here. But Jock Thompson, who wrote up this transaction, correctly points out that post-break, assuming Trout is okay, the real threat or the real possible loser here is Brandon Marsh, who has a, uh, you know, who has really not been hitting well for the last uh, you know month or six weeks in particular. And if Adele, you know, if, if that spark from Adele actually manifests itself, then it could be at the expense of March. Plenty of things to talk about as we approach the break. And of course, I think last week I've said that you and Todd and I were going to be talking about uh, stuff this week in an all-star round table, but of course it's next Tuesday and I'm looking forward to that uh, and to talking with you and Todd. That's right. It's a really late all-star break this year. You're not the only one who got tripped up by that. You know, it would have been entirely reasonable to think that, oh, it's Tuesday, July 12th. That must be the all-star game. But nope, it's actually, you know, it's a week later. It's about as late as the all-star break can ever go. Of course, this season goes a little bit later, a couple of days later than usual because of the, the late start with the lockout. We're playing until October 5th or something. But as we said earlier, we're more, we're more than halfway through. 
Yeah, well more than halfway through. And before I let you go, Ray, I was writing up my promos to, to talk about the site here at Baseball HQ Radio in this week's edition. And when I looked at the site, something jumped out at me. The uh, early bird opportunity for First Pitch Arizona is out there. And gosh, it sort of makes you think, hey, First Pitch Arizona is not that far away anymore. Speaking of things that that are uh, popping up, yes, the uh, I just opened that up yesterday. I haven't even gotten the uh, – we tweeted it out on social media, but I haven't even done the uh, email blast. I'll get that out later today or over the weekend. Uh, but, yeah, we're excited to open up registration. It's going to be uh, it's going to be a terrific one. Uh, you know, obviously we had a good uh, – we had a really successful event last year, you know, after missing 2020 due to the pandemic. But we got back. We were able to do it successfully last year. We're going to do it again. It's going to be huge. Uh, we caught some breaks with the AFL schedule because we had pre-booked our dates and our hotel, uh, and the dates lined up. We just found out a couple of weeks ago with the Fall Stars weekend, which we really always enjoy out there. We get to see all the stars in the All-Star game. They're adding a home run derby this year, which sounds fun. And not only that, but all of those events are happening at Sloan Park, the home of the Cubs, which is conveniently – literally across the street from our hotel. Yeah, it's so, right across uh, the street. We, That's we, right. We, we, we are ground zero for all for fall stars weekend. And I know just from talking to people that there's a huge opportunity, a huge appetite to get out and do live events and see people and go to ball games and swap stories and swap beers at the fire pit. And it's going to be a ball. It always is. The early registration is underway now. You can find it. I just go to the, the main baseball HQ site. It's over on the, uh, right-hand side, it's bright orange and yellow, the the colors of the First Pitch Arizona event. I think it's just under the uh, podcast uh, of HQ Radio and yes. the guys have it. And then uh, First Pitch Arizona is down there, so you can click on that and find out more. Now, we should point out, if you go and click on the, on the uh, First Pitch Arizona logo, there's not a lot yet in the way of schedules and, and that kind of stuff, but to, it's always good. Yes, exactly. We we leave last year's schedule up there to give you a, a flavor of the event. But uh, you know, now that we have registration open and you know over the All Star break, you know, one of the things we always do is this will be the week that we start sending out emails to our traditional cadre of speakers and you know new speakers we want to hear from and start building the program, building the speaker list, and you know we'll have a bunch of announcements from you know now through you know Labor Day and probably even beyond as we add this year's sessions, this year's speakers. Uh, we were kind of hoping we'd have the rest of the AFL schedule out, but that's supposed to be coming soon. And, and then throughout August, you know, MLB starts announcing which prospects are going out there, which is uh, which is always exciting. Like, hey, we're going to see, you know, Nick Prado, who we talked about 20 minutes ago, uh, and stuff like that. So, you know, there'll be a lot more news to come. This is, you know, the website, like you say, is kind of like a shell right now. But, uh, you know, the, probably the most important thing is, you know, if you're curious about it, check out the schedule, get a flavor of what the weekend's like, then head over to Twitter and check out the social media buzz. A lot of the speakers and the long timers who've been coming for years and years are already tweeting how excited they are or what their favorite part of it is. And, uh, you know, those things will uh, get your uh, get your excitement level up and make you think it's something you really got to figure out a way to do. And those early bird registrants, I can tell you, are largely made up of people coming back for the seventh time, the 10th time. A few years ago, we started adding those colored labels on the name tags and you're supposed to write how many times you'd been to first pitch Arizona. When you went around there, there was a lot of ones and twos, which was good because you like to have those new people coming out, but there's also a lot of fives and sevens and tens. 
Exactly. Uh, you know, it's a, you know, there, there, there is a core group of regulars have been doing it for years. And, you know, in the last couple of years, we've seen, you know, the, the new generation sort of catching on too. you know, given uh, interruptions and uh, pandemic concerns and that sort of thing. It's kind of been, uh, you know, there've been a lot of people who came once and missed a year and said, Oh, I want to come back. So I'm, I'm kind of hoping we'll see absolutely everybody this year. We'll get the old, we'll get the new, the hotel can serve up all kinds of space for us as we need it. So I, uh, I tweeted yesterday that I am, uh, I'm on record saying we're going to smash all attendance records this year. All right, Ray, I think you're right. And I'm looking forward to it. And of course, I'm also looking forward to our round table discussion of the first half or the first 89, 160 seconds or whatever it is on Tuesday with Todd Zola. So I'll see you then. Yes, I'll be ready to break down the first 59.2% of the season. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks, Ray. Thanks, PD. Ray Murphy is a co-general manager at BaseballHQ.com and a columnist at the site, and he covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Next up, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Steve Gardner from USA Today. Steve's coming to the plate for his second plate appearance next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, I want to remind you of another great resource at BaseballHQ.com, the Eyes Have It podcast. In this edition, Brent and Chris have a guest, Baseball HQ's own Jeremy Deloney from the Baseball HQ Scout team, looking at Reds prospects Ellie De La Cruz and Jose Torres, and Guardians prospect Angel Martinez. The boys also look at six players for the 2022 Futures game. And don't miss the next edition of Baseball HQ Radio. It's our mid-season roundtable with Ray Murphy and Todd Zola. And then next Friday, we have another full edition featuring an expert interview with Ian Kahn from The Athletic and a whole bunch of other fantasy baseball sites and podcasts. That's Todd and Ray next Tuesday, Ian Kahn next Friday on Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Steve Gardner from USA Today. Steve, welcome back to part two. Thanks so much, Patrick. Looking forward to uh, some interesting topics to delve into. Yeah, I'm calling this segment Hot Takes in honor of all those uh, talking heads on the radio and TV shows that have to fire out uh, big opinions on small subjects. Let's start with uh, something that caught a lot of people by surprise. In Toronto, they fired the manager, Charlie Montoyo. The team has been struggling and hasn't been performing. and Somebody had to go, and I guess you can't fire the general manager, or if you could, (laughs) maybe if Charlie Montoyo (laughs) was the guy who got to choose, he would have fired the general manager. But anyhow, he's out. What do you make of Charlie Montoyo? being shown the door well i think this was a case of the team needs a spark and you know sometimes when a manager comes out and uh, knows that he wants to argue with an umpire and get thrown out um that's that's something that he that uh, he thinks will ignite the team i think the front office felt like they needed some sort of a spark because this is even though the blue jays are in playoff position you know at the moment um, they've been disappointing after uh, finishing as well as they did last year. So somebody's got to to be the scapegoat, and it turns out that uh, Charlie Montoya was. Uh, it surprised me, I'll tell you that. How much fantasy importance do you attach to changes in managers like this? You know, it's it's hard to judge because, at least in Toronto's case, we don't know a whole lot about John Schneider and and what his philosophy is. 
um, whether he likes to to run, whether he likes to take pitchers out early or leave them in. Um, we'll get to know him. You know, it's kind of a similar thing that the St. Louis Cardinals went through um, after firing longtime uh, manager and organizational guy Mike Schilt and bringing in Oliver Marmol. Uh, we had no idea if he would continue a lot of the things that, that Schilt had done. So we've gotten maybe a, a better feel of what the Cardinals are doing. Um, it'll take us, I think, a while to figure out what the Blue Jays will be doing. But really, the, the offense just needs to to perform a little bit better. Um, it, it doesn't seem like we're getting the same you know, great offensive seasons out of Teoscar Hernandez and Bo Bichette and even Vladimir Guerrero Jr. I mean, those guys uh, not performing up to their, you know, the standards that they set last year. Is that the manager's fault? I don't know. I guess, I guess we'll see in the second half. It's like politics. Everything is the president's fault. And in, in a ball <laughs> club, everything is the manager's fault. I think it's interesting that we credit the managers with all of these decisions that they have to make and their their overall approach to the game. And it, it puts me in mind of the Federal Reserve that you have in the United States and the Bank of Canada we have here with this inflation situation. And they, yeah. they, they, everybody says, well, it's up to them to solve it. And then they come out and all the economists say, well, really, we don't know what's causing all this inflation. Could be <laughs> price gouging, could be supply chain shortage. We don't know. But, Push one button and fix it, please. Yeah, and the Federal Reserve and the Bank of Canada, I think, keep insisting that the way to solve this problem is to keep raising interest rates because that's the only button they have to push. And what's that old saying? If the only tool you got is a hammer, all your problems start looking like nails. And <laughs> that's I, right. And I think that's probably also true of when we think about what managers are doing with their clubs because really what a manager should do is he should manage the players he's got. And not just say, my philosophy is that we're going to run everywhere. Okay, Pete Alonso, you know, get out there and start stealing bases. <laughs> or Alejandro Kirk, even even more absurdly. And really what you want to do is have a bunch of players you think mix together well, and then the manager can deploy them to the highest advantage. If you've got guys who can run, let them run. If you've got guys who hit home runs, do that. And that kind of thing. And maybe uh, maybe that's something that'll change. I don't know. The chemistry in a, in a major league clubhouse is a very delicate balance. And we don't necessarily know whether good chemistry causes winning or winning causes good chemistry. And uh, at least, you know, you look at teams like the Mets, you know, Buck Showalter is getting an awful lot of credit, you know, for where they are, for where they are right now. And then the White Sox are disappointing and people, you know, want to point fingers at, at Tony LaRusso. I think it's a similar sort of situation there in Toronto. I think people are also pointing a lot of fingers at Tony Larusa because he keeps issuing intentional walks in just to, to be charitable, <laughs> unusual situations. Hey, we're ahead of this guy. Oh, and one let's walk him. Can't be too yeah. careful. <laughs> uh, I talked about this one with Nick earlier. One of the players most rumored to be on the trading block is Brian Reynolds of Pittsburgh. He's on the DL now, unfortunately for at least a month, he's got an oblique injury. What do you think the pirates might do? And especially what do you think Reynolds fantasy managers have got to do? Well, we've seen occasionally um, teams trade players that have been on the injured list at the trade deadline, and it's taken – wasn't uh, Eddie Rosario last year was a, a classic case of that. The Braves got him and then had to wait basically until the beginning of September before he came on their active roster and then was a star in the playoffs. So I, I don't think it's necessarily uh, – knocks down Reynolds chances of being traded to nil 
But um, you do have to do your due diligence and not have, you know, players, if you're acquiring them uh, and they're injured, you know, you have to make sure that they do have the opportunity and that, that the injury is not going to hamper them when they do come back because you have to give up something to get that player. Chris Sale made his first start of the season Tuesday in Tampa. What did you think? Wow. I mean, can you ask for much more? Five shutout innings, five strikeouts, and and a bonus. He didn't tear up the tunnel in the, leading to the clubhouse or destroy a TV in the clubhouse. So uh, that was good on all fronts. I, I think Chris Sale, you know, is is ready. He's certainly uh, chomping at the bit, as you would say, um, to get back to the major leagues. And uh, you, like I said, you you can't ask for a whole lot more. He he was excellent on the time honored boons and Bane scale, which I just invented this morning. If plus five is a sure boon and minus five is a sure Bane, where do you think Chris Sale fits rest of season? I would say um, I would say he's a plus. 2.7. How about that? Um, I mean, fastball was up in the, the mid nineties, um, got uh, four of the five strikeouts that he had with his slider. Uh, I think, I think Chris sale can be a, you know, I counted on him in a labor last year and, uh, I waited for him to come back. He came back very late, was pretty decent. Um, but not enough volume to help. I think this year he's going to help a lot more. A bunch of Phillies missed Tuesday and Wednesday's games in Toronto because they weren't vaccinated. You mentioned that the same thing's going to happen this weekend with Kansas City, and there have been other teams this season who have been affected. What's your take on this whole vaccination issue and crossing the border from a fantasy perspective? Well, I, you know, personally, I think if if you're not willing to get vaccinated, then whatever you say about being a good teammate I can't take that seriously. I mean, it's, it is a small thing. It is a very small thing in the grand scheme of things. And I think that a lot of people, not to get too terribly political, but if, if players like um, JT Real Muto or Whit Merrifield or whoever say that they're talking to doctors and a doctor is recommending that they not take a vaccine for something, um, where they could spread it to, you know, to somebody else in the clubhouse, to an older, more um, uh, vulnerable person, that's not being a good teammate. And no matter what you can say publicly, you know, we support our teammates' right to do whatever. Um, that's all the Blue Jays recognize exactly what was happening, and they're all vaccinated because they want to have their entire team together. And so, you know, from a from a fantasy perspective, we've got to keep an eye out on which teams are going to Toronto. And we won't know ahead of time necessarily that like with Kansas City, 10 players on their roster were not vaccinated. But we can just keep that in mind. So where you can circle, uh-oh, they face the Blue Jays at the end of the week and I can't make changes. Um, let's see if I have somebody else on my bench that I could put in just in case. I think there's a bigger picture here too, Steve. And that is if I'm looking at a trade in my fantasy league and somebody's offering me, I don't know, Whit Merrifield. And I think Whit Merrifield is a, a pretty good bet for the second half because I read your story and yeah. there's other guys on Kansas city. Ben and might be interesting if he were to be traded, but then I think 
half the guys in that clubhouse are not vaccinated. And that means I think that the whole clubhouse, as you said, is perhaps vulnerable to getting infections. And some of those players might get uh, sick and have to miss time. And it could be Andrew Benatendi for all I know. I don't know if he's vaccinated. And if he is, of course, he'd be protected. But if there's a lot of unvaccinated guys in there, that's a powder keg, it seems to me. And I want no part of it. I mean, I saw, I, grabbed up uh, Vinny Pasquantino for a, for a buck in a fab bid. So I, I'll, I'll ride with him, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't be at all surprised if at some point they say, Oh, Vinny Pasquantino's, you know, he's going to be out for two weeks because he's got this uh, variant or whatever it is. And he may have to be, you know, looked after. I think that's another thing we have to look at. And it's another thing that reinforces your point about the good teammate part of things. Yeah, and, and, and in fact, Ben Attendee was one of the guys that uh, will not be traveling to Toronto. And so talk about trading for injured players. Are you, you know, is any team in the American League East, for instance, you know, Ben Attendee's name was mentioned in connection with the Yankees um, a while back. Do they rethink that um, if, the, you know, they know that they're going to play the Blue Jays However many more times, you know, they could face the Blue Jays in the playoffs. And I think that's where, you know, maybe from a non-fantasy point of view, after the regular season is done and we've crowned our fantasy champions, the real thing is the issue of in the playoffs. If the Blue Jays make the playoffs, everything, you know, everybody's rooting against the Blue Jays because nobody wants to make that trip and potentially lose key players. Um, You know, we saw Tanner Houck in Boston. You know, and some of the others that that missed, they're going to have to go back there to Toronto the rest of this regular season and potentially in the playoffs. Steve, the Yankees did play a lot of games in Toronto early this season, but they do have a pretty potentially significant series at the very end of the season. I think they've got four games scheduled in Toronto, and that's going to be real interesting to watch, especially if they've acquired any players through trade who have to all of a sudden not participate. And then I think the Yankees are relatively safe, but there's lots of teams like Philadelphia, for instance. So they come up to Toronto, they lose two, and I don't think they were really in those games. But yeah. what if they'd have lost by, you know, a run each? And all of those guys who didn't come up think to themselves, wow, I could have made a difference in those games. And maybe, you know, if they missed the playoffs by one game, then the rest of their teammates might be thinking, yeah, thanks a lot. You know, we had a chance and part of the reason we didn't get there is maybe because you didn't come up and and help us play against a a tough opponent. I I think, yeah, it's easy to say, you know, I'm, I'm standing on my beliefs or whatever in the middle of the season when you still have, you know, 81 games or whatever, you know, less than that now, but you still have that many games left to play. But if it does come down to a game or two, and remember too, Patrick, with the new wild card set up, is that there are no tiebreaker games. So it, it goes to, you know, your record in head-to-head or division. I'll have to double-check that. But, um, you know, they break those ties on paper. So you could finish with the same record as another team, and you could get left out, and they could advance. Having said all this, Steve, there's another, there seems to me to be a parallel kind of issue, and that is with religious issues. Uh, Sandy Koufax very famously refused to pitch on a religious holiday back in the day. And uh, there, in basketball, more than in baseball, there are some people of the Islamic faith who participate in Ramadan, which is, you know, eat all day. And, and then they ask you to go out and, you know, bang shoulders with Joel Embiid. It's tough if you're not 
well fed and well have good nutrition. I mean, I know they can eat at night and all those kind of things, but is is not getting vaccinated in the same sort of area as having religious reasons for not playing in what is after all just a game? Yeah, I I can't really comment for sure about other people's um, you know, religious beliefs, but I do know that um, you know, that we have been we have been vaccinating against different types of, of viruses and stuff for a long time. And we pretty much accepted the fact that it, it, it does, does well in wiping out uh, the spread of really potentially catastrophic uh, infections. And I, d- I don't know where, you know, the, there's the, the political aspect of all of this um, gets mixed in. And, and I think people are maybe not willing, not as willing to listen to a variety of points of view that uh, if you get into your little personal bubble, um, it's hard to get out sometimes. And uh, so I think that's, that's kind of where we are. And we had a story in USA Today that came out today that talked about the number of major leaguers that have... Um, that have not been vaccinated and have been denied entry to go into Toronto. Um, and 96, 94% of them, I think it was 36 out of 38 or 34 out of 36 were born in the U S. Um, and it perfectly mim- uh, uh, matches the percentage of people in the country who aren't vaccinated. So it seems like whatever you know, um, whatever bubble that that some people are in on this issue, um, it doesn't matter if they're professional athletes or a citizen at large. You know, baseball reflects society, and uh, we're we're seeing kind of the correlation there. Well, back to the competition side of things. Uh, you yes. mentioned earlier that Toronto's in tough in that American League East, and the American League East has gotten suddenly tougher with the sudden surge of the Baltimore Orioles. This is great news for anybody who's a, ba- a Baltimore Oriole fan. Let me in. There you are. Yeah, you're in the area. I have a friend of mine uh, back in Regina, Saskatchewan, who's a big Orioles fan, and and uh, I'm just happy for them. The Orioles are winners of nine of their last 10 or 10 of their last 11 or something like that. They're absolutely rolling. But how real do you think it is? Well, um, I have my uh, orange colored glasses that I put on because I've been an Orioles fan since the 1970s uh, growing up. So I love to see them. I mean, they're they're a fun team to watch, too, um, which is also uh, a plus because they're winning games late. Um, But the realist in me says that this is a bit of a mirage because all those wins in the 10 game win streak have come against the Rangers the Angels, and now the Cubs. So, I mean, teams that are just not the class of baseball and are certainly not playing well right now. So take the win streak, enjoy it, but also realize that it hasn't come against the best competition that Major League Baseball has to offer. But uh, once, again, once we get into interdivision play and they start facing the Yankees and the Blue Jays and the Red Sox and the Rays, um, I think reality will set in a little bit more talking about, you know, should the Orioles start adding players because they're suddenly close to a, you know, a wild card spot. I, I don't think uh, the optimism should ride that high, but for the future, I think things are finally looking up and uh, for long suffering Orioles fans, that's great to see. 
I just checked, and it's ten in a row for the uh, for yeah. the Orioles, uh, mostly against some pretty soft opponents, as you said. Uh, they open at Tampa on uh, this weekend, and then they play the Yankees, and they play Tampa in Baltimore. But after that, Cincinnati, Texas, Pittsburgh. <laughs> so you know they may yeah. be bouncing back and forth, winning a ten in a row, losing ten in a row. <laughs> It'll be interesting <laughs> to see. That's for sure. Is there any fantasy implications for teams that are going on streaks like this, especially a team like Baltimore that might have some players who are not rostered in shallower leagues? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, again, the competition will will uh, ramp up in their next ten games. But you know, Jorge Lopez has been a revelation this year, and um, I think Baltimore was one of those bullpens at the in the preseason where fantasy managers just going to skip them, avoid them altogether because they're not going to win a lot of games, and there's nobody really with skills above and beyond anybody else. But Lopez has been uh, amazing, um, and the bullpen in general, I think is one of the, the reasons why they've been able to have this kind of surge there. I looked it up. The, the, the bullpen is fourth in the major leagues in war. And it seems like the starters can get them five innings and then turn it over to this collection of arms um, where the Orioles have not been strong in previous years. Um, they have been outstanding this year. So Jorge Lopez, for sure. Um uh, you know, there's a lot of hype of over Adley Rutschman coming into the season. He's finally come up, um, starting to, to hit a lot better lately. Um, but otherwise, I don't know that the Orioles really have any, you know, kind of uh, star caliber players who in a mixed league, for instance, you're going to have in your lineup every single every single week. Um, they've just been doing it all, you know, making the, uh, the sum greater or the, the whole greater than the sum of its parts. I think Mullins and probably Mountcastle would be pretty widely rostered. But other than that, true. I, I don't think that uh, hardly anybody will be. Jorge Mateo has almost as many home runs as Trey Turner in Los Angeles. I saw this on Twitter the other day and more stolen bases. I mean, there's a hundred point difference in on-base percentage, which kind of even sings out a bit. But gosh, they're getting some interesting performances for sure. And I think Jorge Mateo, if your team has a you know, pretty solid foundation in batting average or on base percentage. If you play as you should in the league with that format, um, all of a sudden Jorge Mateo looks like he could be reasonably helpful in a fantasy format. Yeah. And, and we saw from the jump really that Mateo was going to go out and steal a lot of bases. So the, the, the opportunity to get him at a, uh, at a low price was either on draft day. If you had an, an idea that he was going to be a regular player every day, um, or very, very soon as the season started. I think one of the keys is that he's just been excellent defensively. And the problem that he's had in his career to date, um, other than you know, hitting for a decent, decent average, that's kind of kept him out of the lineup, was just having a place to play defensively. And he's been you know, pretty close to gold glove caliber at shortstop. And uh, the, if, if you can play great defense at short, you're going to be in the lineup most days. There's been lots worse hitters than Jorge Mateo who have uh, made a living playing shortstop because of the glove, that's for sure. In Baltimore, how about Mark Belanger back in the day? Uh, you know, there's a there's an example of a good field, no hit kind of guy who had a pretty good career. You're near and dear to my heart, Patrick, because he Mark Belanger was my favorite player growing up because 
my game was just like his, or at least I felt <laughs> because I, I was not a great, uh, great power hitter by any means, but I felt like I could play good defense and help the team win that way. So Mark Belanger was uh, my, my guy. And uh, I would, I would wear number seven for Belanger. Another question along the same lines, how about the Seattle Mariners? They've won 10 in a row. And in this case, not all against weak sisters. They won a, they started against Oakland. That's where the streak started. And of course, Oakland's a pretty soft touch, but they took two in San Diego. They swept Toronto at home. Those are two pretty good teams. The last two wins have been against Washington and they have Texas coming up. And then they have a, a pretty interesting series coming up in Houston or in Seattle against Houston a little later in the month. So we're going to, I think, see what the Mariners are really made of, but how real do you think this streak is? Now here is a team that is definitely legit. I mean, you've got a budding superstar in Julio Rodriguez. Um, you've got an all-star uh, caliber player in Thai France. And this is a team that overachieved considerably last year and we're on the verge of, you know, being in the playoffs up until the, the last little bit of the season. Um, and uh, it was it would be hard to have all the breaks go their way in terms of clutch hitting and one run wins and everything. But even though the record and the winning percentage isn't as good this year, this is a much better Seattle team. So, yeah, these guys are legit. It would not surprise me to see them, you know, give uh, give the Astros a, a run for their money, maybe not for the division title. Um, this year, but going forward, yeah, definitely a team on the rise. Any players on Seattle who might be rosterable that might not have thought to be rosterable two weeks ago or a month ago? I, I'm still bullish again on Jesse Winker. I think uh, I think he's got a, a lot of upside left. And one name to keep in mind um, was he was just sent down uh, earlier in the week, George Kirby. Um, has been impressive to me as a as a rookie pitcher coming up and um, being able to kind of control the game, you know, strike out a, a decent number of batters. They sent him down just because they want to kind of limit his innings, and um, you can bring him back up after ten days, and so that'll encompass the All Star break. He'll be ready to go from the start uh, of the second half, quote unquote. So uh, keep an eye. George Kirby's a guy I really like. The Rays are having a year from hell in the injuries department especially, and now they're going to be missing a couple of players in Wander Franco, who's having some surgery on his right wrist. I think he's going to miss five to eight weeks. Uh, first question, if he misses eight weeks, that puts us all the way into September. So under what circumstances would you drop Franco from your fantasy roster? First of all, the league has to have uh, be one without an injured list because I think he would be – uh, unless, you know, you only have one or two injured list spots and you've got a Jacob deGrom or somebody that you're waiting on, um, you may have to. But in terms of of leagues like the NFBC that don't have an injured list and you have a finite number of bench spots, those are going to be more important than I think what Wander Franco could give you a month or two from now. So, yeah, I, I would think that 15-team uh, mixed leagues Definitely. Um, you could probably cut him loose. I mean, the, the stats that he's been putting up were kind of disappointing. We, we got a taste of, of his potential at the end of last year with uh, you know, the home runs, a great batting average and on base percentage. So a lot of runs scored in, in the half of season that he was up. Um, and I think the, uh, the optimism for, for Wander Franco was a little bit, a uh, little bit too high this year and his numbers didn't justify that. So at this point, You've got those factors of the disappointment, um, 
you've got the injury and the fact that the hammock bone injury will probably be something that will sap his power when he does come back. Um, yeah, I think he's definitely droppable in the, in pretty much anything larger than an AL only league. How interested should we be in the probable playing time beneficiaries, particularly in this case, Taylor Walls? No, I, I think Walls is, is one of those guys that again, plays pretty good defense. So he's going to be in you know, the lineup most days and hasn't shown a whole lot, um, in terms of, uh, as a major leaguer. So, I'm kind of passing on him. Uh, Jonathan Aranda was called up from the minor leagues. Um, mediocre prospect, at least in my mind, from a fantasy standpoint. They picked up Yu Chang off waivers. Um, again, I think those guys are just depth pieces. And the way that the Rays try to maximize their roster and get the platoon advantage they're not a whole lot of, of everyday players there in Tampa that uh, you can count on. So I, th- I think they're going to try and counter Franco's absence with a lot of volume. And for, you know, for fantasy owners, fantasy managers, um, there's not a lot to really get excited about. Maybe Christian Bethencourt. Uh, I'll, I'll put that out there. Um, a guy with, you know, if he gets catcher eligibility, um, might be a guy that that could help, um, but only you know if he does uh, qualify a catcher. Also in Tampa, Steve uh, Kevin Kiermeyer's out with a hip issue. Apparently, he's going to go see a specialist, but not till after the All Star break because they have to wait for the swelling to subside. How do you think Kiermeyer's fantasy managers need to respond with this added uncertainty about when he's going to be seeing somebody, how long he's going to be out? We don't even know when he's going to see the doctor. Yeah, Kiermaier was marginal at best anyway for fantasy purposes. Um, I would cut him before I would cut Wander Franco if you have both of them. But um, really, he's he's just a speed guy uh, with an occasional home run every now and then. Um, so maybe Josh Lowe, after you know struggling earlier, um, gets his feet under him. Uh, if anything, possibly uh, you know a Josh Lowe resurgence might be the the best thing that could happen there uh, with the Rays. Side question, Steve, how much, if anything, should we adjust our expectations of the Rays pitchers, given the defensive importance of shortstop and center field? And it seems like they're getting a little better at shortstop defensively and a little worse in center field. So is there any reason to get into that level of granularity when you're looking at the Rays pitchers? Um, not necessarily. I mean, McClanahan, I think is, is a guy that you want regardless. Um, and the rest of the starters, you know, they, they like to piece the rotation and, and the bullpen and, and everything together. Uh, I will say Brett Phillips is, is a pretty good defensive player in his own right out there in center field. So I don't think the drop off is, is very large. So the, the defense still pretty decent, um, at those key positions. I think the biggest minus, though, for the Rays is just the lack of run support um, because they're they're an awful lot of uh, of dead spots now in that lineup, and you know, we've seen them get no hit already this season, and um, we we may see that again later on. Well, you mentioned that they're not exactly pounding the cover off the ball, and you also mentioned how the Rays are not 
traditional in how they deploy their pitchers, and they're getting, if anything, less traditional by the year. And there's been a lot of buzz in the industry, I know, about Jeff Passan's recent story about the coming extinction of traditional starting pitchers because of the analytics about third-time-through penalties and maximizing velocity. What did you think of the main premise of that story, that baseball is going through such a significant evolution in pitcher use that it's really going to mean the end of starting pitchers as we know them? I think that's a lot of merit to what he had to say. Um, we're, we are not seeing those workhorse starting pitchers uh, in in the numbers that we have in, in previous years, maybe even a decade ago. And, uh, you know, Alec Manoa was kind of the focus of that uh, article as, as kind of a throwback, you know, a big, big hoss of a guy who doesn't mind pitching complete games and going deep into games and things like that. I, I think of I think of him. I think of Max Scherzer as, as that kind of bulldog mentality. I think of Adam Wainwright. But beyond those guys, I mean, there aren't many. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that baseball has to wrestle with because when you look at the history of the game, you know, especially before, you know, in, in the in the, the 20th century and and coming into, you know, that even the 2010s, the starting pitchers have been the stars. And, you know, you want to know what what's the pitching matchup today? You know, we see probable pitchers, um, you know, that's that's part of the, the box score and the standings and, and the things that we want to see at a glance. And we just aren't getting those star starting pitchers anymore. Or, or if we are, we're not seeing them for much more than five or six innings a night. And uh, so, the, the, the star pitchers uh, have given way to the mass bullpens because those guys, the interchangeable arms coming out there and throwing in the high 90s, it, that's what wins baseball games now. And if you stick too long with your starting pitcher, when you have capable bullpen arms and uh, he gets lit up, you know the analytics say you should have made the pitching change sooner. Another point that gets made about the traditional starting pitchers is that fans want to see this. That it, uh, the fans want to see these big matchups, and I agree with you. If I see if I see uh, Garrett Cole and Shane Boz are facing off, I'm going to watch that game, even if I don't have that much interest in the game itself. I just like seeing one nothing games and two one games because I just like that kind of thing, and it's because I've been watching baseball for a very long time. I'm old enough to remember when that was kind of more the norm. Than, than it has been the last 15 or 20 years or so. But at the same time, I also wonder, I see a parallel here with how pro football developed, especially in the NFL. And that is, I can remember when the defensive players and the offensive players played the entire game. And in my lifetime, we've seen nickel defenses, dime defenses, weird like 3-4 defenses and 4-2 and defenses and all of these kinds of things. We see special specialist third down running backs who really are pass receivers. We see uh, defensive pass rushers. That's what they're actually called when, they, when they're in the draft. You know, he's a rush end. Okay, well, yeah. I don't even know what that means, but does it mean you can <laughs> run against him? I don't know. But... I think pro football fans have really got used to this increasing specialization. And I wonder if we should expect that baseball fans, especially younger ones who grow up with this kind of um, management of pitching staffs, is just going to be something that 20 years from now when I'm uh, pushing up daisies, but maybe my kids and their generation are going to say, oh, look, they've got, a, they've got this 
12 or 13 man pitching roster and they're all pitching three innings three times a week. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think one of the things that, you know, when we look at, uh, if we're, we're nostalgic baseball fans and we look at the good old days when, for instance, you know, the Oakland A's under Billy Martin had five starting pitchers and they completed, what was it like 60 or 70% of their games That's right. that year, the Mike Norris, um, uh, Dave Stewart, I'm sure. Rick Langford, Dave Stewart, you know, those guys. Um, and I think in, in Jeff Passan's article, in fact, he talked about that every single one of them developed some arm issues in the next few years. And I think that's one of the things that are, that is lost in all of this is that the injury risk of having pitchers go that hard, that long and pitch that deep into games is real. And when you're talking about these huge dollar contracts for starting pitchers, teams, you know, are much more incentivized to protect that investment and, and maybe say, pull Clayton Kershaw after seven innings of pitching a perfect game, you know, as, as Dave Roberts did uh, just because you don't want to, you know, add that extra injury risk. Now the question is, where is that line? Um, I think, you know, uh, managers and and front office staff have tried to make sure that they draw the line before uh, the injury hits. You know, and they think that the injury is 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 more likely um, because if you just go over it a little bit and and the injury happens, you know, it could be catastrophic. You could lose that pitcher for a lengthy period of time. That's certainly a financial financial interest of the teams, and I would add another one. Starting pitchers, the top end guys who can go seven innings to start your Max Scherzer's and stuff, cost an awful lot of money. I, I think Scherzer's making over forty million bucks this year. I think uh, yeah. Garrett Cole's are in that neighborhood. And if you look at how Tampa's doing it, leaving aside McClanahan when he gets his payday, and I'm sure it won't be in Tampa, but it's conceivable that you could look at a twelve or thirteen man pitching roster where everybody's making two and a half million bucks and they're kind of fungible. They just have a, a, some kind of huge army of them ready to go. And instead of paying one pitcher 45 or 50 million bucks a year, you pay 13 pitchers, 3 million bucks a piece and spend the rest on hitting, which is a lot more reliable, a lot more longer term, those kinds of things. I think there's a financial incentive to do what Tampa's doing, even if you're the Yankees or the Dodgers. Boy, doesn't that sound familiar now, Patrick, that you mentioned that? Doesn't that sound like a fantasy baseball strategy? It does, um, yeah. You're you know, right. Maybe the Lima plan or something like that. Um, the so, Labadini plan, the, the yeah, $1 pitching so. staff, yeah. Exactly. Maybe even closer to that. So, I mean, it's it's not like something that uh, hasn't been thought of before. And I'll tell you one thing. I remember when the the Rays first had – uh, d- uh, deployed the opener and Sergio Romo started like maybe back-to-back games or something and pitched an inning in each. And Zach Cranky, I believe was the guy that said right off the bat, Hey, watch out. This is a strategy to not have to pay starting pitchers. And I think a lot of people kind of just dismiss that as well. He's, he's a starting pitcher and he's just looking out for himself. But as it comes, you know, as, as we've seen the evolution of this, uh, this idea, it's basically what he said has come true because it does allow you to not have to pay for that big, you know, that big starting pitcher or, or two big aces, 
you know, or three big starting pitchers. Um, it, it it can be a cost saving mode, and and teams that are uh, prone to want to do that certainly can. There's also a risk management aspect to it, too. If you've got $45 million invested in Jacob deGrom, what has that got you so far this year if you're the Mets? Or if you have, you know, a first-round draft pick in fantasy or a a $40 out of $260 bid and you've got Jacob deGrom, what has that got you? You know, you would have been way better off to spend that draft pick on a hitter or to spend all that money on a hitter and grab up some of the lesser guys and roll the dice and, and... I think one of the aspects of this that is being kind of overlooked has to do with injuries, and that is if you have a bunch of guys that you're only asking to pitch two or three innings a night, maybe twice or three times a week, that if one of them gets hurt, there's a million of them out there that are maybe not exactly quite as good, but it's a lot easier to replace a guy like that than it is to replace a Max Scherzer when he goes on the I.L. Absolutely. And again, to tie it into fantasy, it's like, you know, streaming pitchers. Um, and and funny, we look at the Mets payroll this year and it's close to, I won't say it's exact because I'm not uh, 100% sure, but you look at the top end payroll in Major League Baseball, it's like right around 260 million. So, I mean, the fantasy parallel, you can see if Jacob deGrom is making 45 million or whatever, you know, 40, your $45 pitcher that you got in the auction. Um, you know, and has given you nothing in return. It makes a lot more sense when you can see all of these parallels kind of kind of lining up now with uh, what fantasy baseball managers have have known for a while. John Hart of Cleveland, and I think later of Atlanta, said the only way to manage your roster is to not spend more than sixteen percent of your available budget for players on any one player. And I, I think that. He was just talking about players in general, but I wouldn't be surprised if that applies doubly to pitchers. And you mentioned that uh, certain uh, <laughs> certain fantasy managers have had success with this. Uh, Doug Dennis of Baseball HQ is leading; he's running away with the American League only in tout. And the re- the way he did it, he's got nine relievers plus a couple more in, on his reserve list in case he needs to roll guys in for injuries. And if one of them gets hurt. You know, the one thing that there's a million of in a single league fantasy free agent pool is relief pitchers. There's lots of relief pitchers and you you can look through them once a week and there's always two or three of them that have an ERA of 1.6 and a whip of 1.05 and they just came out of nowhere and they may be only three weeks worth, but they're really (laughs) easy to to move in and out off, off your roster using fab and just churning that part of your roster because you can't churn any other part of your roster. There are no other free agents. There are no free agent hitters. There are really no free agent starters. What there is, is 10 million free agent relievers and Doug seems to have exploited that perfectly yep and uh, and there always will be because we'll get those guys called up from the minor leagues as the uh, the major league teams churn through them one of the proposed solutions assuming this is a problem that needs a solution is to restrict rosters to 11 pitchers out of the 26 which would limit the team's ability to throw one 100 mile an hour reliever after another in the late innings while slowing the game down to a crawl as well. What do you think of that as a way to solve the problem if it's a problem? I I think it's an interesting concept and uh, uh, if we're looking toward, you know, pitchers not being max effort one inning guys and we want to encourage um pitchers to as as they said back in the old days, you know, to save their arm 
so that they can make it all the way through a, a particular game, then yeah, that might be one way to do it. I mean, it's not impossible. You could get, you know, you could turn those one inning relievers into two inning relievers. You know, it's not, uh, we've seen guys have successful careers as multi-inning relievers and as, you know, very great weapons. Josh Hader can do that. Um, we've seen him do that in his career, but right now he's a one inning closer and he's very effective in that. But if you cut down to just 11 pitchers, maybe Josh Hader does throw, you know, two innings at a time. And, uh, and we end up possibly having starters go longer. Um, so I, I think that's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, it is. And every time the subject comes up, I know people who listen to baseball HQ radio regularly will will know that I'm going to mention Mike Marshall back in the day, who was a Cy Young caliber pitcher with a million saves and a ton of wins. And he was pitching 160 innings or something like that in relief, never started games in, in those years. So, uh, it can be done. The danger of looking at a Mike Marshall and saying, well, why can't they all be Mike Marshall's is that maybe he's just one of those physical freaks like Nolan Ryan who can go out there or, uh, uh, in back in the day, some of those old timey pitchers who went 300 innings and I think yeah. Randy Johnson threw 300 innings one year and mm -hmm. uh, he lasted a long time. Gosh, he was well into his thirties before he quit. So I don't know. It, there's a lot of things going on here. The article mentioned a couple of other ideas. I'll just get you to comment on those quickly. When the team pulls its starter, it loses its DH. The pitchers have to hit. Seems like it would force more pitching changes as you rolled around through the, uh, through the batting order or limiting the number of pitching changes per game or starting relief pitchers with a 1-0 count. I don't like any of these, but what do you think? <laughs> um, not a fan of, uh, of the double hook, uh, losing your DH. I mean, you want to have your best players in there. Um, and you want to see the best players hit, uh, if a pitcher has a bad day and, uh, you have to take out a Nelson Cruz or somebody like that. Uh, that's not good for the fan. I don't think, um, limiting pitching changes. Maybe, maybe that's, that would happen organically if you went to 11 pitchers on the roster. Um, the one Oh count. I don't like things that, that mess with the rules. That's one of them. I don't like, I, I, I relate that to the starting an extra inning with a runner on second base. Um, so those kinds of abominations are non-starters for me. You're listening to baseball HQ radio, Patrick Davitt with Steve Gardner from USA today. And Steve, I like to wrap up these discussions up by looking at our boons and banes. These are guys you think are good for the rest of the season or bad boons being good of course let's start with your boons players who look like good value for the rest of the years from your point of view who's an american league batter who could be a boon well i, I like Corey seager in, uh, in this i mean he had uh, home runs in five straight games recently uh, seems like he's uh going into uh, you know his first season in texas uh started very slowly he and marcus simeon both seem to be hitting a little bit better now as the season has progressed so Corey Seager is a guy that I like uh, in the AL. How about in the National League, a batter who could be a boon? I'm going to say just because he'd been so bad in April, May, and June, uh, Chris Bryant went homerless in those three months, but then so far uh, in this month already had four home runs, and none of them have come at Coors Field yet. So maybe the best is yet to come for Chris Bryant. Over to the mound, who's an American League pitcher who could be a boon? Uh, can I still say Kevin Gossman? <laughs> this is the Kevin Gossman appearance, um, but I love everything that he's done and, uh, and I think he'll only get better. And a National League pitcher who could be a boon? 
I like Brandon Woodruff in Milwaukee. I mean, uh, stats have not been great so far, but he did spend some time on the injured list. Um, and since he's come back, had three pretty good starts. Uh, we had a lot of high expectations for Woodruff this season. You know, maybe not Corbin Burns Cy Young Award like, um, but not too far below that. So I think I think Woodruff has a very nice second half. Now let's go to our Baines. These are players you think will be overvalued or disappointment level during the uh, rest of the season. Starting again in the American League, who's a batter who could be a Bane? Well, I I like this guy, and we we talked about how he's the best at his position in the American League. But Jose Ramirez has been slumping uh, over the past month. Only one home run, four stolen bases over that uh, 30-day period. Um, He's... You know, I, I won't say that he will be this bad the rest of the season, but he's certainly disappointed a lot of people who, you know, based a lot of their fantasy strategy on on having him as their key player. I know one person that traded for him just before the slump started, and he's <laughs> pulling his hair out because it cost him quite a bit. It was a keeper league, so a lot of prospects yep. moving and a lot of low low price guys. Yeah, uh, who's a National League batter who could be a bane? Um, hard to say. I- I'm going to go with maybe Gavin Lux um, of the Dodgers. Uh, nice batting average, but um, is not doing a whole lot with it in terms of of uh, home runs and, and RBIs and counting stats. And he does struggle against left-handed pitchers. He's playing out of position. You know, they're seeing more time in the outfield. So uh, I think he could be in for a for a, a slowdown over the course of the second half. Back to the mound. Who's an American League pitcher who could be a bane? I had high expectations for Lucas Giolito this year. Um, uh, and yes, his number, he had a great start his last time out. So maybe that's a, a sign of better things to come. But again, um, high batting average on balls in play, you might point to and say that's why he's disappointed. But you know, the ERA around that five, you know, around five. And to me, the problem with him is just too many just disaster starts. And uh, you know, if you look at the PQS numbers, um, an awful lot of ones and zeros for a guy who should be an elite pitcher. Binary. Uh, National League pitcher who could be a Bane? Again, maybe Dodgers uh, and, and Craig Kimbrell has been has been pretty bad. Um, and I wonder if, I, I think the Dodgers want to have him be their closer, but I wonder if they may go out and get somebody uh, at the trade deadline to maybe help him give him an extra day off or so. Um, he has not been great. And to keep running him out there, you know, back-to-back days, maybe three days in a row, Dave Roberts doesn't want to do that, but um, the results have not been great. Uh, so I'd watch out with Craig Kimbrell. And given the importance of having a good record, it's not like even if the Dodgers are running away with that division, which they're not, but even if they were, you want to win every game you can because it has ramifications in the playoffs. And this is definitely a playoff team for sure. Indeed, uh, indeed. Steve Gardner's Boons, Corey Seager of Texas, Chris Bryant of Colorado, Kevin Gosman of Toronto, Brandon Woodruff of Milwaukee, his Baines, Jose Ramirez of Cleveland, Gavin Lux of the Dodgers, Lucas Giolito of the White Sox, and Craig Kimbrell of the Dodgers. Uh, Steve, remind our listeners where they can keep up with your work. Sure. You can uh, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Steve A. Gardner and uh, look for me in the pages of USA Today Sports Weekly in print and, uh, and online at usatoday.com. And uh, yeah, I'll be, I'll be there and maybe even writing about some sports other than baseball. You never know. 
Looks like you have been, and they've been really good stories, so I hope you have the opportunity to keep that up. Steve, I was expecting this to be terrific, and certainly it was no disappointment. Uh, it was definitely a boon, shall we say, to have you on the show this week, and uh, hope to talk to you again during the year. Uh, thank you, Patrick, and I hope I was just on the plus side of the uh, boons and bane scale that you just invented, um, uh, and uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. 5.3. Yes. Well, that was the Russian judge, so... definitely a bias there thanks steve thanks so much patrick take care steve gardner writes for usa today we'll take one quick break here and then we're back with our hq commentaries the frequent flyer and extra innings coming up on baseball hq radio one more short promo though you heard ray and i talking about first pitch arizona well here's a few more details it's november 3rd to the 6th and it's in phoenix arizona actually it's in mesa but it's all part of one gigantic big city The early bird registration, as you heard, is open through the end of this month. Full registration, all the seminars, all the ball games, all the hobnobbing, all the panel sessions, all the drafts, and this year's Fall Stars game right across the street from our event hotel, all for just $299. That's almost half off the regular price, but you got to act now. Early bird registration ends on July 31st, so get over to the BaseballHQ.com site, click that big orange and yellow box on the right-hand side and get yourself registered for the most fun you can have this side of draft day. It's First Pitch Arizona. I sure hope to see you there. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our regular commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up and leading off it's the frequent flyer. A commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster. Here with a look at Pittsburgh reliever Yeri De Los Santos is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. His arsenal features a 95-mile-per-hour sinker, and he might be, according to Baseball HQ's Dan Marcus, a prime candidate to speculate on as a source of saves in deeper leagues this season. After making his Major League debut on May 25, 2022, 24-year-old Pittsburgh Pirates right-handed reliever Yeri De Los Santos has effectively mirrored his 267 career ERA in the minors with a 265 ERA at the big league level. He's not overmatched. More importantly, the Pirates have gained trust in De Los Santos in more high-leverage roles. In fact, De Los Santos has earned three saves since June 29th. Foreshadowing? Maybe. Again, referencing the July 5th edition of Playing Time Tomorrow at BaseballHQ.com, Dan Marcus astutely pointed out that Pittsburgh's current closer, David Bednar, has garnered plenty of trade chatter ahead of next month's deadline. So where's the opportunity? Remember, despite their paltry 38-52 record and 42% winning percentage, Pittsburgh currently ranks number four in the National League in save opportunities, perhaps suggesting a sneaky source of post-All-Star game saves. Fantasy gold? Possibly. Then again, De Los Santos has only saved 18 games in 96 minor league appearances, indicating a possible lack of late-game high-leverage experience. That's why 24-year-old Pittsburgh Pirates reliever Yeri De Los Santos, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, especially a closer who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. A closer look shows that De Los Santos effectively relies on two pitches, his 95-mile-per-hour sinker and his 84-mile-per-hour slider. 
Worth noting, he's only thrown his 95-mile-per-hour four-seam fastball three times in 16 Major League appearances. Right there, Dilo Santos's arsenal screams weak contact ground ball pitcher, as reflected in his soft contact 87-mile-per-hour average exit velocity from opposing bats and his extreme 56% ground ball rate, according to MLB's StatCast. Once again, our research at BaseballHQ.com establishes a modest correlation between StatCast's average exit velocity, in this case 87 miles per hour, and ERA. Additionally, we've ascertained at BaseballHQ.com that among pitchers with normal strikeout levels, extreme ground ball pitchers have ERAs about .4 runs lower than normal ground ball pitchers, according to the tools and analysis available to you at BaseballHQ.com. All of this appears to add up to a prime opportunity to speculate on 24-year-old Pittsburgh Pirates reliever and perhaps future closer, Yeri De Los Santos is our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my regular commentary on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I want to talk about having fun with stolen base stats. Steve Gardner and I talked briefly during our discussion about stolen bases this year and how they compare with past seasons, especially recently. I guessed that the number of bags was up a little over the past few years, but I wasn't sure, so I looked it up. Using BaseballReference.com, I got the stolen base, caught stealing, and stolen base opportunities for the last 10 seasons, from 2013 through Wednesday of this season. Stolen base opportunity uses Baseball References definition, namely, a runner on first or second with the next base unoccupied. I calculated these values, stolen base attempts per 100 stolen base opportunities, and stolen bases per 1,000 plate appearances. I also looked at stolen base success rate and the percentage of the season's stolen bases that were made by the season's elite base thieves. So first, stolen base attempts per 1,000 plate appearances. The first thing I wondered was how aggressive managers are being in even attempting stolen bases, so I rated the stolen base attempts in each season per 1,000 plate appearances. This season's rate is 4.5 stolen base attempts per 1,000 plate appearances, and that's up pretty substantially from 3.9 last year, but it's pretty close to the 4.4 we had in 2020 and the 4.5 in 2019. We did see much bigger numbers of attempts in earlier years. All six seasons from 2013 to 2018 had more than five stolen base attempts per thousand plate appearances, peaking at 5.8 in 2015. So we're down from there, but up in the last couple of years. I next looked at stolen base attempts per hundred stolen base opportunities, and the result followed the same pattern, which in hindsight made sense because the stolen base opportunities per thousand plate appearances were all in a very tight range from about 357 to 365, around 360 or so, so it makes sense that the pattern would be the same. So going on to the stolen bases per thousand plate appearances, that rate likewise tracked the other measures, but more loosely. The 2022 rate is 13.7 stolen bases per 1,000 plate appearances. It's in the ballpark of rates from 2014 to 2018, but it's well back of the high, 15 stolen bases per 1,000 plate appearances back in 2014. 
The driver of those differences, of course, was stolen base success rates. 2015's high stolen base attempt rate was undone by the lowest success rate, barely over 70%. 2022's 4.5 per thousand plate appearances attempt rate was 23% lower than 2015, but the stolen bases per thousand plate appearances was the same because this year's success rate is almost 76%, six points higher than back in 2012. In fact, from 2019 on back, success rates were 73% or lower, with a nadir of 70.2% in 2015. Put another way, those 2015 managers ran more often, but the low success rate of that year's base runners limited the number of bases successfully swiped, and the opposite is true this year. There's one other factor in managing stolen bases in fantasy, how widely or narrowly the stolen bases are distributed among the players. I didn't do a big deep dive into these numbers, but I did get the top 10 base stealers' shares of the total and the top 50s. Here, there's a trend worth noting. The share of steals going to the elite is dropping. The top 10 share this season is 14.1%, tied to last year's level and down 16% from a high of 166 in 2016. A lot of 16s in that sentence. Similarly, the top 50 shares are dropping as well. In 2013, the top 50 base stealers accounted for 49% of all stolen bases. That figure was approached in the short 2020 season, but otherwise it slipped down to just 44.5% this year, which is up slightly from about 43% last year. And finally, just for information's sake, seven of this season's top 50 base stealers are at 100%. They haven't been caught. Another six have success rates under 70%. Dylan Moore, Starling Marte, Shohei Otani, Ramon Laureano, Tyler Wade, and Bo Bichette, whose success rate is a non-whopping 54%. So the moral of the story appears to be that we're seeing increased stolen base attempts over the past few years and a rising stolen base success rate, resulting in more stolen bases which are being distributed more deeply across the player pool. Good news, I think, when we're looking for stolen bases in fantasy baseball. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick David of BaseballHQ.com, and I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, July the 15th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 27 of the 2022 fantasy baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Steve Gardner from USA Today, a knowledgeable and interesting fantasy baseball media veteran and a heck of a nice guy to boot. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy, and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. And take a second to go to Apple Pods, Pocket Cast, Google Pods, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio at gmail.com. 
Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Tuesday with that mid-season roundtable featuring Ray and Todd, and then again next Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring an expert interview with Ian Kahn from The Athletic. That's Todd and Ray Tuesday, Ian Kahn next Friday on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk with you again on Tuesday, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.